Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fail Special on World War One, episode 20.99, Talk. This episode has been many months in the making, guys, and I'm sure you'll guess by the length, it's also been many hours in the editing, so I'm sure you'll appreciate and enjoy it as much as I enjoyed taking some time with Sean to just really go through the motions of the First World War and just examine all those little bits that I didn't really get to examine in as much detail as I wanted to in the major episodes building up to it. Well, I guess that's really it. I don't want to waste any more of your time, because it's quite a marathon we've got in store for you today. So I hope you enjoy this, and let me know what you thought through the usual channels. So this is it, our last episode in World War One. It's been fun, it's been very interesting. And thanks very much. The next voices you hear will be mine and Sean's. Enjoy. Back on the podcast, and my guest as always is Sean. Say hello, Sean. Hello. And we are very happy to join you today in your ears for this very special episode Talk episode on World War One. You have such a way of saying it. I know, I have such a way we, of words. I'm in your left ear, by the way. Yeah. So, isn't that right? Yeah, I'm in your left ear, it sucks. Yeah. The right ear is probably better, though. Yeah, yeah, well, if you've only got one headphone in, I recommend putting me back in, because I like your ear. Actually, how do we awkwardly introduce BeFit, or do we just introduce No, we just B-Fit? go, well, you know, in light of current trends. <laughs> yeah, <B-Fit. laughs> I don't think it works like that. In Pretty li- sure we need to find a really cheesy way to introduce it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, hey, Zach, have you know what I've started doing? What? Being there. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was really great. That was really great. I was going to be like, um, so there I was on my run the other day, and I was thinking, isn't it great to be fit? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so B is? Blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie. It's not really um, being used very much at the moment. You will notice a very big change in that policy once we start into the new series like of the twenties. You, you uh, treat your blog like a, a diplomatic parliament. Like, then well, we're going to change its policy. So, <laughs> well, at the moment, there's a voting system in Zach's mind as to whether or not yeah, to go ahead with this. We're that is very true. Split fifty-fifty down the middle with the liberals and Democrats really choking each other out here. Uh, don't worry, I, I think the Republican Party will sway for liberals, so it'll be fine. Yeah, and th- and now that, it's, now that that's over, we're going to actually use it. <laughs> mainly, it's going to be mainly used for bibliographies, but we'll come to that in 
the state of the podcast address to take place in the near future. Also, in the blog, you can donate, which I actually must say a few people have been doing recently, and I really, really appreciate it. A big shout-out to Con and Michael, both from Ireland, uh, Kildare and Donegal, respectively. So that's always nice. Um, uh, enjoying the cold, Donegal? Eh? Yeah. <laughs> it's nice and chilly up there. Yeah. Bit of snow. don't know how it is in Kildare. I'd say it's probably the same as here. Yeah, really nice. I'd yeah. say it's really fantastic. It's quite sunny now, yeah. yeah. Quite unlike the weather that we've been seeing in our English friends... And our Northern Irish friend. Um, e is for? Is for email. WDFpodcast at hotmail.com Where you can send me whatever you want. To an extent, obviously. Yeah, I, I do a have a spam folder and it is in use. So no um, no sneaky emails from those. Do you ever get those really ridiculous... Like, so obviously fake emails that are like... Oh, um, really, Mr. No. Hamajad wants you to yeah, donate yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 600. Oh, dude, I remember <laughs> you went through a phase of posting on yeah, Facebook. Yeah. Like, just the, oh, this person wants me to do this. I think I should. Uh, <laughs> That's because they're so ridiculous. You were like, if I get 100 likes, I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they'd always be like, um, uh, it turns out we're actually related and there's loads of money waiting for you in a sum. All you have to do is send me your every single detail about your life and uh, then we can sort it out I promise like does any if anyone actually does fall for that and send them everything and they're like oh wow I must have inheritance waiting for me that I've never been told about before in my life if you're a bum with a phone yeah you may as well well you probably have to have Wi-Fi as well no just a bum with a phone oh "Oh, hey I don't have anything but an email address and you're telling (laughs) me all I have to do is give you all my details Okay, fine. <laughs> it seems legit. Like it'll backfire if they do it the other way around. That's true. Yeah. Well, right. Well, and that's the E for email. So no spam. No spam, please. Although I have been getting some good emails, yeah, and I even like the short and sweet ones. But I also like the essay type ones where you tell me who you are and where you're from and all the other kind of stuff. Like it's very enjoyable, and I generally try to reply. But if I don't, then that's either because it's gone into the spam folder because there's something wrong with my email. Or because I'm very, very busy, which is often true. Um, Busy or lazy. Yeah, busy or lazy. F is for? Facebook. The Facebook page, which is the most obvious one, which has just recently crossed 500 likes. Yeah, I'm really impressed, because that means you actually have more likes than the Hobby Shack, which is where I work. So, um... How many likes does that have? Sponsor. uh, Hobby Shack has, like, 200 and something. I'm not sure. We might have hit 300... Uh, but you have more than us, and you're just a podcast. We're yeah. a business. Well, you don't have BeFit, though, do you? That's true. You and have we have BeFit. no way of advertising to our customers. That's true. So, yeah. yeah, you've got... Yeah, so that's the best way to support the podcast directly. Hey, wait, while you're liking the page, why don't you drop by and give me a comment or like something like something on the page itself? Look over yeah. the old photos, maybe. Do um, that. The, the thing about it is, is if you're not going to be on your iTunes or looking for Libsyn, mm-hmm. it... If you're on Facebook every now and then, it, you, it'll come up in your feed. It, you'll be able to see, here's the latest podcast. Exactly, and yeah. It's, you know, it, it's convenient. It's not like mm. um, you're going to be there anyway, yeah. which sounds really sad <laughs> from, from my perspective. But uh, yeah, you're going to be on it's Facebook tr- it's at a, some point. a very good way of keeping up to date with what's going on in When Diplomacy Fails' world, which can be very handy, especially because my lifestyle is just so ridiculously hectic and oh how could i possibly forget the history podcasters group yeah oh dude i know i keep occasionally like i used to post more and i occasionally get little updates now and then but it's like just buzzing in there it's going really well it's going very good 
at the moment there's a lot of people who are talking about starting different podcasts so it's a very exciting time to be a podcaster and if there's anything that you would like to ask any podcaster at all and you may not know where to find them history podcasts is the place just search it in the groups in facebook and you'll find us pretty also easy. if you need to take a target audience poll like hey i need to know about 20 to whatever year olds about history mm. i need that age group just yeah. stick a poll on there and see that yeah. see what happens exactly yeah it's handy uh yeah so i is for itunes where you can search for the podcast in the little search bar there's always going to be a search bar there even if you have the new or the old itunes so that's good to know once you do that you click on the little square that comes up which is my photo of the podcast and from there you can rate or review us Give us something nice, uh, something nice to look at, because I actually am a bit of a spy in that way, that I in that I hop all over the different iTunes stores, so I'm looking at all the reviews, good and bad. I, if I should you're a make bad some, boy, please send him an email. Yeah, or rate something. It, basically, if you like the podcast, give me a good review, and if you really, really like the podcast, find any reviews that are bad and vote them down. <laughs> <laughs> Democracy right there. And uh, make sure that people know that tolerance will not be accepted in this region. T is for... Tell somebody! Because you can never tell enough people about the podcast. And it's free because you're just using your mouth to talk with words that people will hear. You were going to be expelling air anyway. You may as well use your vocal cords to vibrate in such a way to inform someone of this information about, uh, like, history and all of this good stuff. Exactly. Make that that rupturing of the air useful to me by mentioning the podcast. Yeah, exactly. And then that other person is going to just get this huge amount of wealth of information and podcasts because if they've never heard of it they can pretty much pick up anywhere in history they want yeah relative to what zach's already Mm. done and the great thing is we just we just put it posted our 40th episode that this episode that we're doing now will be the 41st episode so in total and the great thing like if you ever come across a podcast you've never heard of before and then you're like oh i'm kind of interested in this and there's like a treasure trove of like episodes that you've never heard of yeah so that's always it's the same with war games and stuff yeah you go oh my goodness i've never seen this system before and all of a sudden there are models and models and models for it and you're like holy crap yeah okay so if you've done be fit or parts of it, or all of it, or even thinking of doing parts of it, or all of it, then thank you, because your contribution makes a very big difference to me. Okay, so let's just get right into it. Um, We're starting with episode 20.1, but already I should warn you, this isn't going to be like an exact process. We're going to jump back and forth by whatever takes our fancy, and sort of, if something ties into later in the the actual story, we'll we'll jump to it and then come back. Of course. Or we'll forget where we were and just (laughs) carry on. That's entirely likely as well. Yeah, this isn't like a. This isn't going to be like exactly structured. We're going to be going through some main themes. We're going to be going through some ideas and the stuff that I was like, oh, no, oh, I'll mention this in the podcast with Sean. I will hopefully remember to do that, or else it'd be quite embarrassing for future reference if I say that I'm going to do it in the talk episode and I don't. That'd be you kind of bad. Should have been writing in this standing on this. Yeah, I should have, but these are the kind of things that you think you should do, or you think that I would do, but that I just don't. Hindsight. Hindsight is twenty twenty. And it's a great excuse as well for instances like these. Yes. Okay, so let's get right into it. Uh, Turpets. What do we think of Turpets? Is that how you spell Turpets? Yeah. Okay, well, from what I gathered about Turpets, he was a really big player. I mean, in terms of the early days of of what set up the diplomacy. Because without him, there wouldn't have been this uh, setup for confrontation with Britain. Mm. Now, later on, when it's set in stone, and that's going to happen anyway, 
He's not really a major player. I don't mm. actually know what he was doing in the direct build up to war mm. because his his input wasn't as wasn't as huge to the actual diplomacy. And um, yeah, no, I I do I do see what you're saying. Actually, it's interesting you would say that because one of my lecturers has actually talked when he was talking about Turpitz, He said that Turpitz was basically in a very high position in Germany until about 1916 when he resigned because Germany did unrestricted submarine warfare, but then it stopped. And in Turpitz's mind, it should have continued with that unrestricted submarine warfare because that was the best way Germany well, could win. I mean, obviously, if you're going to listen to a terrible leader, yeah. you may as well stick to his guns. You but you see, Turpitz liked to flip-flop an awful lot. He was the advocator. Really? Well, yeah, I mean, he was the advocator of, we need ships now. And he was the one who tried to convince, and successfully, mainly because Kaiser Wilhelm II was so caught up in the idea of having a navy, it was easy for Turpitz to kind of bring the idea of a navy to him and find support. He served in the navy, didn't he? Yes. Uh, uh, Wilhelm. Yeah, he did, but only for a little while, and this was just before he came to power. Like, the navy was his favourite posting. He was very... He was actually... I didn't really mention this, but he was quite disinterested in what the army was doing. And he preferred much more regular naval updates. Oh, which I'm, I'm a, the Prince of Prussia, the greatest <laughs> military on land. But I want boats! Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's ridiculous because especially when the war starts and apart from a few odd stragglers, the German Navy is pretty much stuck in harbour and can't go anywhere because it's blockaded by the British Navy. So there isn't exactly much in the way of updates for Wilhelm II to read. So in that sense, the idea of submarine warfare, which, oh, I don't know, do you think we should just cover it now, submarine warfare? Yeah, absolutely. It'll probably pop up a little bit later on because it's so important. No, I think if we're going to discuss Tirpitz, we should discuss yeah. his role in the war as well. Mm. But like I said, he did like to flip-flop a lot because at first he was advocating ships, but when it became obvious that Germany couldn't match Britain in terms of ships, um, Tirpitz started to look at other options and it took him a while as it did for everyone who was sceptical about submarines to accept the idea that submarines could make a real difference in the war mm. um, but eventually when it became obvious that the Allies like Britain and France didn't really have much in the way of counter yeah, counter-submarine warfare or even tactics because the submarine was so new there was very little accepted um, ways to deal with them. So as a result, there was horrendous losses. And it wasn't until about mid-1917 um, that the golden years of the uh, submarine warfare for Germany came to an end because convoys were implemented, basically, just like they would be in World War Two. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, the, big, the big thing with Tirpitz, though, is that he does a lot of damage, as my lecturer, as my lecturer emphasized to us. He does a lot of damage in terms of um, Anglo-German relations, but once once his last few naval bills are passed, he pretty much fades into obscurity into the background. So, Tirpitz, for what he did, he did do an awful lot of damage to... Um, Especially for the relationship with Britain, because yeah. that relationship looked golden. That, yes. Like, the the mm. Kaiser was so emphatic with the, like idolising this British yeah. empire that, that Queen Victoria had, and yeah. that relationship that he actually had with mm. the Queen Mother, and it just seems like... It could have been used. It could have been a, a golden victory for Germany. Yeah. And they just... I just Turpitz turned it on its head. Yeah, and like, this is why this is why I find it so annoying that Turpitz is not vilified more throughout history because he is probably more responsible than any one individual for changing completely the history of what 
Europe was going to be because it looked very likely that France and Russia were going to be on one side and Austria and Germany were going to be on the other and Britain was going to be like the middleman. But that all changed as soon as Germany started determinately building ships, which it did at a rapid rate. Well, what I don't understand is why uh, Germany didn't start to treat immediately with Britain to set up this naval alliance because what... Yes, he wants ships. Yeah. But what good is having ships when someone has a bigger navy than exactly, you can yeah. beat you around? That's why, yeah. You you make yourself an ally of mm. the British, and then you go, my ships are your ships, your ships are my ships. Now we have the unstoppable navy that mm. the world can look in awe to. Yeah. We will build your ships. You can give us tactics. Mm. It could have been this beautiful relationship yeah. that would have set both countries up to dominate the world. Yeah, and like imperialism wouldn't have stopped. It mm. would have. It would have grown because those two countries were so strong in themselves. Exactly. Yeah. I, you, the reason why I think is just it comes down to a few things, and one of them is just ignorance of the British character. Because Turbots believed that by building enough ships, it could scare Britain either into an alliance or into. But- the British are stubborn, like yeah, like, uh, like Churchill said. Yeah, the, the bulldogs. <laughs> yeah, well, they are Europe. like they are stubborn, and it's not like you can scare someone or you can bully someone into an alliance. Like to think that shows the naivety of Tirpitz, even while he was deadly serious, and that's why he was so determined to do this, and he believed in this idea so much that he was willing to push everyone else out of the way. Like those officers who were above him, who were conservative, i.e. sensible, as I like to call it, because they knew that even if Germany did engage in a naval race with Britain, all it would do would alienate the two sides, because Britain was always going to outproduce Germany in ships, because it had been a naval power for centuries. Yeah. Germany can't just arrive on the scene and be a naval power. Now, we're, we're just skipping over that little point that Britain actually changed from coal to oil. How much of an impact do you think that actually put on the war itself? Yeah, well, that is a very good question. And this is actually covered very well in one of the books that I took. It was uh, just for the purpose. If you remember, I took a Churchill quote out of one of yeah. the books. Yeah, that book, The um, the World Crisis, um, Churchill, even though he wrote it, he does cover the logistical problems involved in changing from coal to oil. And they are pretty big. The main thing was that the Middle East became really important to Britain. And yeah. because the Middle East became really important... The Suez Canal became really important. And because the Suez Canal became really important, Egypt and North Africa became really important. So you suddenly see this whole strategic change and this whole new need to protect not just India, but the Suez Canal and not just the Suez Canal as a trade or strategic positioning, but as a vital waterway whereby the oil could get through and their main oil interests are at stake. Well, what I was uh, really looking for there was... What tactical advantage in terms of actual performance would a coal, uh, an oil-based ship yeah. have over the coal-based mm. ships that Germany was well, using? Well, you see, the thing you have to understand with coal ships is that they have to coal, which means they have to take on coal around the world. Like, they can't go for a specific amount of time without having to coal. Like, they will run out of coal and they'll be stuck in the water. And is that not very similar to oil as well? Well, it is, except that oil is a lot lighter than coal. So you can carry a lot more oil on your ship. So therefore, you can last longer in the seas independently from coal. And you can also go faster. 
because of some <laughs> chemical reason. I think either either Combustion coal, engines, yeah, it's yeah, it's steam. to do it's yeah. to do with the the way the technology was developing at the time. Oil was a better, it was more Combustion. risky. Yeah, oil was riskier to bring in because you would have to bring in a lot of other technical changes as well. But the result was that within a year, Britain's navy was far more technologically superior in terms of speed and in terms of its efficiency with using its um, fuel. fuel. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it meant that while Germany had to stop off or hope that neutrals would allow it to call in certain stations around the world, Britain could go whatever it wanted, and it didn't have to worry about that kind of problem. So that was a huge thing as well. Okay, that is a good question, though, because I didn't even... I don't think I even went into it that, that yeah, much. Yeah, no, but I, I was just looking at the relationship. Mm. Like, I thought that, uh, well, Tirpitz, yeah, he, he caused the whole war, but mm. had his ideas been successful, yeah. would it even have made a difference against this tooled up British I, I really do doubt it but if you think about how the British and German navies match up like look at the Battle of Jutland for example in 1916 that was like the only large scale naval battle in the whole war and in many ways for Britain it was a disappointment because even though Churchill had spent so long recalibrating all the ship's cannons and everything else and even though Britain had spent so long trumpeting the dreadnought and spending so much money in the end it was more of a like pathetic draw because Germany was able to sink more of Britain's ships but because Britain had more ships Britain was able to continue with the status quo and if the Germans hadn't run away and if they'd stayed to fight they would have been destroyed like so the British would have won but because the Germans escaped they lived to fight another day wink wink nudge nudge because even though they were really fighting another day all they were really doing was sitting in the harbour and not moving anywhere after after the Battle of Jutland so it wasn't the the big knockout punch that the British Navy was expected to deliver so in that sense you could argue that because Jutland wasn't that much of a British success although it could have been that maybe Germany would have had a chance if it had built the same amount of ships as Britain, but even then, that would have cost a ridiculous amount of money, and it's mm. it's it, even in that sense, it's impossible. So no, I don't think they could have because Germany as a country was not geared towards the kind of naval production or naval expenditure that uh, Britain was. Do you think that it would have been possible to elicit? help from a foreign power such as America to build your ships. Well, people have been doing that for a while and actually you'll see that more take hold as the years progress in America. Like in into World War Two a lot of a lot of countries are having their ships built by America. But at the moment Britain is still the major industrial powerhouse. Mm. And there is there is a strategic interest as well in this. There's a good example Churchill gives when the Ottoman Empire is sends in an order to the British Empire to build it two battleships and Britain is not sure whether it wants to deliver these battleships in early 1914 because it's worried that the Ottomans will use them against them so it stalls for time until the last minute when it turns out that indeed the Ottomans are going to go to war against Britain and it's a good thing that Britain did keep those ships because that would have upset the balance of power in the Mediterranean where Britain had another fleet so at the moment Britain is building ships for a lot of people the Ottomans is the most is the is the example I can call to mind most readily. Yeah. But certainly, it was helping France out with its dockyards as much as it possibly could because it was cooperating so closely with strategic defense in ground and in naval as well. 
we really cut her naval aspect really well. Mm. I think the only thing left is to touch on the dreaded dreadnought. Yeah, the dreaded dreadnought. And if you'll notice that little fit I had in that episode. Uh, <laughs> I was like, just talk about the boat. Yeah, I, I can't, though. I can't bring myself to, if you're ever not interested in something. Okay, what's its max knots? I don't know. I Oh, oh I think it was 26 knots was the max. Okay, and what's its knots. comparative... Uh, What's his comparative predecessor? I think 21 was the predecessor, but it wasn't so much the speed because it had heavier armor, so it was impressive enough that it had greater speed because it was heavier and it was bigger, etc. Another thing was that the ships were... The ship's cannons themselves were recalibrated so they were far bigger. Like from... Like, I think it was 12-inch to 15-inch guns. Wow. And that took a long... That took about a, that took about a year. That f- that wasn't fully completed until 1911. You see, the Dreadnought came in in 1906. Yeah. But it took a while before the guns developed their greatest extent. And it got to the stage where, in 1911, the guns were so big that the British were able to get rid of one of them and place a new a new boiler in the place... So they could bore, so they could burn more oil, so they could go faster. So you added the speed and you added the greater guns. Like that's good. how many crew members would a, a dreadnought carry? On average, there's about two thousand seamen on on each vessel. That is a lot. Yeah, man. there is there is a lot, but that's at the most, and yeah. and generally there wouldn't be that many because they're trying to save on manpower. But that's actually that's an interesting point. That's another thing. Because of the centuries of naval tradition Britain had, it had far more better trained seamen than Germany had. Can and we call there them was... naval personnel from now on? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, had, it had far more better uh, naval tradition. And because of that, yeah, this meant that there was a great shortage in not just German naval theory, but people who were willing to go on German vessels and go across the world because it was seen as not so new and not not like taboo. Like, I don't want to give the impression that Germans were afraid of their own boats. But, like, certainly... They, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, It would make sense why they all stayed in harbour, though. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. But certainly there was a lot more honour to be seen in fighting, especially in 1914. There was a lot more honour to be seen in fighting in the army than in fighting in the navy. Mm. The navy's impact wasn't really as appreciated as it would later be. What what were its uh, emergency systems like? Like uh, lifeboats, and was it equipped with radio? What what sort of oh yeah, communications well, and oh jeepers! Stuff? Like I don't want to pretend that I know the answer. Like see, this is why I I don't like getting into it. <laughs> I really find this stuff interesting. Though. Do you? And I know there's some people out there. Oh that no, yeah, no, of course. That see, this is the problem. I wish I was as interested in this as everyone wants me to be, because that means I could give you more details and I could give you more information. But I just feel like I have to give it a certain... I have to okay, give the podcast we'll, a certain we'll do focus. Something, we'll do something a little easier. What was its length? Its length? Okay, yeah. that's no more easier because like I still don't know. Oh, in thousands of feet. Okay. Uh, oh, jeepers. I don't know. Like, How many football pitches? I think it was two. Two football pitches? Yeah. That's a tiny ship. No, it's not. They're giant. Yeah, it's not very big. Yeah. Are oh. you sure it was just two football pitches? See, I don't even... You see, I don't really know. Hey, stop asking me questions about dreadnoughts. <laughs> and I did combine it with football, which is another thing you yeah. have no idea about. Um, I think an important thing to remember with Turpitz as well, because we still haven't moved on from this oh, guy he's yet. Just the, he is the uh, aristocratic villain of this entire <laughs> He play. really, he really, I think you really could. You could see him as the villain, though, couldn't you? Because yeah. he used the idea of the Navy to basically further his own ends. And... 
the the thing I was trying to figure out is why he wanted a navy so badly. Like he must have believed, like Kaiser Wilhelm II believed, that in order to be a superpower, you needed a big navy. Like that must have been what he believed in. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone to such trouble to convince Germany that Britain was Germany's greatest threat. Because before Turpet started doing that, France or Russia was Germany's biggest threat, not Britain. Britain was like the person on the outside who Germany could maybe call on if it really needed help. And in the early 1900s, which we'll talk about in a little while, it was the best chance Germany had for a solid alliance in Europe, in the world, that could like propel it onto the world stage. Mm. So it's such a shame that not only Tirpitz was there at the time in history, but that Wilhelm was there as well to kind of encourage him on. Because if Wilhelm... Like, both depended on the other. If Wilhelm hadn't been there then Tirpitz wouldn't have been able to find a sympathetic ear. But if Tirpitz hadn't been there, Wilhelm, I don't think, would have been able to find someone to bounce his ideas off of grand naval glory that he was able to do with Tirpitz, and he wouldn't have been able to realise those dreams or feel like anyone understood his naval dreams. Like, it's so... It's, it is. It's but, so kind and, of... And you're like, you can blame Tirpitz, but then yeah. again, Wilhelm... Yeah. There is, a lot, there is a lot to be said about the two of them kind of in cohorts, certainly until until war itself breaks out and then they have a kind of falling out and Turpitz doesn't really do all that much. Um, like I said, he's not... Uh, he is, he is like, on the Prussian head of military council kind of thing, but, like, he's not... He's not in that hands-on approach as he was before. Are, did you get any, uh, uh, like, quotes from him? Is, is there any diary entries for instance of him talking about oh crap what have I done or Wilhelm even even at the time realising their mistake you know there was there was when I was talking about do you remember one of the episodes when I was talking about the book that I got it was like talking about Germany's designs on America yeah and there was one of the guys who had thought of that um, whole idea with uh, attacking America and how it needed a fleet and he was the like he 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 thought of the idea of attacking America with the fleet and like the whole strategy. About ten years later, he was saying how much of a bad idea it was and how Germany. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I remember, and he was slating people who were going, yeah, yeah that's a great idea. Yeah, he's like, no, it's not. It's yeah, he was saying idea. that it was a terrible idea, even though he <laughs> thought of it because he'd seen in motion just the fact that Germany just couldn't do what it was supposed to do. And that that course of action it was going on towards navies was just a bad course of action at the end of the day. And but all of this, like it has to be placed in the circumstances of the time. And in order to do that, we have to look at what was influencing people at the time. And a really big influence at the time was Alfred Thayer Mahan's The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. That book is very, very little, very little about it is remembered today, like in terms of the impact it made on the rulers of the world because it created this new revitalization in sea power around the world, like Japan and America and Germany all began to see the need to build a navy. And I found numerous quotes about how obsessed with it Wilhelm II was. And that played a big part in defeating this sense that he had that Germany needed a navy. And with that sense, he was able to find its fulfillment in Tirpitz. And that's what it really comes down to. The two complemented each other as much as the two needed each other. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so we're going to move on from the two of them for the moment. Yeah, and we're going to move on from navies as well. Yeah. So I don't think we just need to discuss anything more on the water unless we talk about Britain. Well, we might talk about submarines a bit later yeah. for what it did for America and everything else. Yeah. But for the moment, I think we should move on to some diplomacy. Um, in particular, the wars that took place at the end of the 19th century and, yeah, the, very and the very beginning of the 20th yeah. century. Because a lot of these wars really do shape the focus of Europe and of the rest of the world. In particular, I'm going to mention three. Italy's attack on Ethiopia, yeah. um, Britain in the Boer Wars, mm-hmm. and America in Cuba. So the first one, what do, what do you know about Italy and Ethiopia? Not much. Okay. I thought it was Tunisia, but that was actually France. But... Yeah. Well, the, the whole thing about Italy and Ethiopia is... Basically, the fact that it wanted Tunisia, but it couldn't get it because France was there. So it went for the next best it thing. It went for the next best thing, but it was just... Oh, the story, it's really quite a sad story. Italy in general, like, as a as a world power, from its creation in 1871, it just it's just such a disappointment from the get-go. I mean, pretty much everything it tries to do in terms of empire doesn't go very well. And even if it does succeed, like, it makes an incursion into Libya in 1911, and that just doesn't really work. I mean, it does work in that it takes it from the Ottomans, but it doesn't work in that it puts Italy massively in debt, and it takes way longer and way more resources than they thought it would. And as a result of that, they're not... Actually, that's one of the key reasons why Italy doesn't feel confident enough to declare war in 1914. Notwithstanding the fact that it didn't want to declare war in Britain and France anyway. Um, but we'll get to that in a little while as well. Um, Italy does not feel confident enough in its ability to enter the war in 1914 because it's so still so drained from 1911 and its that experience in Libya. Insane. But that's just Libya. Italy made another incursion into Ethiopia, as we mentioned, in 1895. So all of these things, they're not working out very well. No, nothing nothing seems to work out well for Italy. It's like it's like the story of, of grand plans just going up in smoke, but over and over and over again. And it's so bad as well because it, it leads to... Basically, it leads to Mussolini because all these failures and these disappointments make Italians so frustrated with what way they're being led that they think that this guy can do a better job. Well, that's funny because... As... <laughs> he doesn't he's, even... He's yeah. an equal disappointment. Yeah, he's an equal, <laughs> he's an equal disaster. Um, but more... so bad. Yeah, it's just like... Uh, and then he bring, it brings us up to 1945, basically, where from then on, like, the only real way to describe it is a tragedy. Because anything Italy tries to do when it tries to replicate what Britain or France is doing in Africa, it's either too late and the lands are already taken, or it fails, as seen in Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is a very good example of a European power underestimating what it's about to do. And there was so much racism at the time. Like, this is a ridiculous amount of racism. This was covered in episode 19, by the way, um, the Italo-Abyssinian War. And it was just so disastrous for Italy because upon its losing of the war against Ethiopia and its failure to capture any new territory, isn't it? It was pretty much ostracized from the great power group and it wasn't considered a power worthy enough almost like it was still part of the Triple Alliance. But as far as its contribution to potential future wars... What was that quote? Someone emissary said that, hey, look... This is fine, but we're literally dragging yeah. Italy along yeah. this alliance. Mm. That's what it was. And it was only these things... Those feelings were only exasperated by Italy's like disastrous attempts to um, make, a, make an impact on the world stage. 
So basically, Italy's attack on Ethiopia set off a series of chain reactions that made everyone in Italy less satisfied with the government. So the yeah. government that was in place collapsed. Wasn't, yeah, and that was the beginning of Italy having just constantly collapsing governments. Yes, it, it did. All the way up until 1915, where it was like a government of national unity, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, which basically meant that the king appointed someone who he liked and that person stayed there for the entire time. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was it was very it was almost martial law in some places because Italians for the most part like just it just sounds so depressing. Like it's a, it's a very good example of the romantic ideals of Italian nationalism just failing so completely. It's and probably because they are the sons of Rome and realistically they should be uh, a powerhouse like they were mm. I think Italy just used up all its like it used up all its goodness on Rome I think yeah. <laughs> there was just none of it left well in fairness it used up all its goodness and then educated everybody else on how to be that good yeah. and then couldn't keep up yeah exactly <laughs> okay so another important war around this time is Britain's incursion into South Africa in the second Boer War which we covered in episode 13 I think yeah the, yeah. the Boer Wars yeah. we did a talk episode on that as well we did as well so um, check that out if you if you haven't already because it gives you a good bit of background in fact all these wars yeah all these wars are covered um, the next one I'm going to cover the Spanish American War was episode 4 so it just goes to show you how interconnected they all are yeah, and how much he's just building all these up yeah. to the to the culmination, which is uh, episode twenty. Yeah, I really was, and they, like that's why I'm so happy to be doing this now because it's like the, it's like the crescendo. <laughs> yeah, it's like the crescendo of all the wars that I've been building up until now. Like this is like the realization of the war. So, so the Boer War. The Boer War was very important for Britain because it, well, it taught them how to fight a guerrilla campaign against yeah. Boer settlers, and it also taught them. That Germany may not have its best interests at heart. And oh yeah, that's right. The yeah. Kaiser was like, "Oh, hey, good job on beating the the, the Kruger, British." Yeah, the oh, Kruger tel- such a child. <laughs> the Kruger Telegram was a very ill-advised piece of writing. But then again, he's consistent in his inconsistency. Yeah. The second Queen Victoria dies, he's like, "Oh, better go save." Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like the Irish and going, "Oh, sorry, Hitler died." What's wrong? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> like the um. Yeah, We're I, consistent in our inconsistency. Exactly. Yeah, that's. I think that's the best way to put him. It's a good thing he wasn't the foreign minister, but it's a bad thing that he had so much influence on. Like, it's just a bad thing he was there in the first place. <laughs> like, he really was consistent in his inconsistencies. Like, trying to what? Like, as soon as almost as soon as the Boer War ends in 1901, mm-hmm. Queen Victoria dies, and then Wilhelm is upset and, Brit- and ingratiates Brit- himself to Britain. Poor Britain is like. Oh, these guys totally don't have our best interests, and now we adore their king because yeah, he's so yeah. It's, it's in such love a, with our queen. It's such a bipolar relationship, <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't help at all to to solidify. I think that's one of the main reasons, which we'll get to in a while, why the idea of a Anglo-German alliance doesn't seem like it could possibly happen because there is just no way that a Germany like that that keeps on flip flopping in its international and domestic policies could possibly be a stable ally. Even though Britain offered, was it, three treaties in two years yes. to try gain this yes. alliance? Yeah, that's very important as well. Um, but one last thing on the Boer War. Yeah. Britain really did feel like the victim when the Kruger Telegram happened. Yeah. Although saying that, 
They got over it fast enough to accept Germany with open arms once Wilhelm was seen as the grieving grandson yeah. and to offer an alliance once splendid isolation had come to an end and Britain really felt like it needed an alliance. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the final war I want to cover um, before we look at the Russo-Japanese War and all the other stuff around and before that is the Spanish-American War. Uh, so the Spanish-American War, I think is it's important to kind of draw our focus back out of Europe to remind us mainly that there's more to the world at this stage than Europe. And the main thing that was going on in the world other than Europe at this time was America. Okay, so the Spanish-American War happened in 1898 and took took place on the other side of the world, basically, far away from Europe, in the Spanish, soon-to-be former colonies of Cuba and Puerto Rico and Guam and the Philippines. The whole idea that America had, because as a former colony, it didn't want to have any imperial policy, that's shown as completely not true at all in the way that it fights a guerrilla campaign in the Philippines for the sole purpose of occupying the Philippines. And in that sense, it's very it's very revealing in that sense because it shows America's true policy. Not to sound anti-American or anything, because I'm not, but it also shows what America is really capable of and that at this stage in the world... And at this stage in time, America is now a world power. And it emerges into the 20th century just in time enough to be a world power. Because Spain now, is because as a result of its losing the war, Spain is ostracized pretty much even more from the worldwide council of powers. But that's another story altogether. But if you get what I'm saying, it's very much the end of an era for Spain and the beginning of a new chapter for America. And that new chapter is Empire. So when we get to like the early 1900s, we have this situation where Britain and Germany look like for the first real time they may be approaching each other for an alliance because this is before the major naval bills start to be brought in where yeah. the two sides are really drawn apart by that. What, what's what's your view on on the idea that Germany and Britain could form an alliance at this stage, like the impact it could have? Well, I think it would have been a very flimsy alliance, Mm. especially considering the fact that Britain had just taken offence, and now, all of a sudden, oh, well, we'll be your ally because you love our queen. It's it's just, it's fickle, because if you're going to base foreign policy on royalty, Mm. it's not going to work. That's medieval thinking. You need to think in terms of global politics, Mm. and I think that even if that treaty was signed... I think the the final result would have been very similar. I yeah. mean, considering if they did sign that treaty and then built a navy, I think Britain would have still seen mm. the arms race as an arms race, even though they had just signed a treaty. Mm. I don't think Britain would have gone, well, you're our allies, so we'll let you build a navy. Yeah. That's in, yeah, that is very true. But I think maybe, I don't want to go in too much into alternative, um, but I think maybe just the fact that Britain and... Germany, if they were able to establish a relationship, a proper one, like the one that Britain and France would later establish, where like they actually did genuinely trust each other instead of compete with each other, I think it would have been possible. But that's only if Kaiser Wilhelm II changed his strategy from wanting to better Germany at the expense of Britain to wanting to better Germany with Britain. Like That's the only way yeah. it would have worked. I think what they would have been nice is if they'd done a conference, some sort of international yeah. naval mm. conference, where they agreed that Britain was the king of the navy, yeah. and that 
Germany would ask for permission mm. from. I know it it limits German sovereignty, and I know how power hungry the Kaiser is, and how he doesn't like <laughs> submitting himself to anybody else. But if you're going to keep Britain sweet, yeah, you need to let Britain take the reins on your foreign policy mm. for naval yeah. uh, adventures, because otherwise, you build anything, they're going to freak out. Yeah, if, That's, if you yeah. go, hey Britain, we want to build a navy. Will you help us? Will you mm. tell us how much we can build so that we're not stepping on your toes? Mm. Britain would be not only flattered, but would instantly hold you in higher regard than it would all its competitors. Yeah, I liked your I liked your point about the like agreeing that Britain should be the navy as well, because in that respect, then Germany could agree to be the military arm of the alliance. Yes, which is what actually and Germans love being the military arm, <laughs> and Britons love being yeah. the navy. But this is actually um almost what they tried to do except that I actually think to be honest that in this case it was Britain's fault because the alliance that they were proposing to Germany was not just simply was not a good oh, deal to it's Germany it's true because it, it would be if Russia declared war Germany would have to stand in for Britain and take a huge front yeah, assault exactly. and it, the other way around if mm. uh, Germany declared war on Russia Britain what had to send some boats around the other side yeah. of the world and Britain was not about to declare war on France which in the case if Russia did declare war on Germany it was very likely France would join Russia yeah. against yeah. Germany so so it was not a good deal so that's one of the reasons why it didn't go with the alliance but still to build that friendship yeah when I suppose it's not pivotal Britain mm. hasn't really sh- shown or flexed its muscles in Europe itself yeah. everyone acknowledges that it's powerful mm. in the colonies but everyone also thinks, well, we've all been powerful in the colonies. Yeah. Surely it's easy at this point. Yeah. And anyone who can't be powerful in the colonies is weak. <laughs> so that's why people like Italy and Spain get get their, get slapped about. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> pretty much up until 1914, and even a little bit after, you might even say, Britain is still the the power of the world. And that is not, that just is not disputable. And I will, wear, I will eagerly welcome any yeah. any challenges. Who disagrees? <laughs> Hands up. Um, You're wrong. <laughs> the, the, the power, like a lot of people point to America in 1914. Mm. Now the power of America was there, but it was not as realized. Like it wasn't put into practice like Britain's was. Yeah. And that's just as simple as it gets. Let's move on now to the Russo-Japanese War, which I think is probably the most important event. Yeah, absolutely. That happens oh, before it's so demoralizing for the Russians, and is I think one of the leading factors for Russia pulling out of the war. Oh yeah, I think so as well. But it illustrates how much of a paper tiger Russia is. Mm. In that it has so much land and so much resources that are so, so much untapped, manpower. so much manpower, but it just does not know how to use it, and it's so—I don't want to say backward because it makes it sound like I'm all kind of racist or but, something. But but realistically, at that time, because of the huge strides that uh, communism was able to do in the country, mm. you would say comparatively yeah. it was backward yeah. at the time. In that sense, it was because. Russia was just not able to do what the other powers were doing, even though it had more enough of the resources and the manpower to do it with. There has to be some central reason why Russia was not able to achieve what everyone else was able to achieve. The Russia-Japanese war is important for a few main reasons. What are those reasons, Sean? One, it made uh, Russia look like a paper tiger, which is what you said. Mm -hmm. Two, it made 
uh, Japanese enter the world stage yes. as a power mm. and uh, help to bring Britain out of isolation. And in in the sense that Russia was no longer what everyone thought it was capable of being, this was realized in its full extent in Germany as as a result of that getting more and more powerful. Even though Germany had been trying to maneuver itself within this war mm-hmm. diplomatically to try and get another war to come out of this war between maybe like Britain and Russia and interest it, even though Germany couldn't do that, and even though that policy definitely failed, the, the free hand policy, as I called it, well, as one of my authors called it, um, even though they couldn't make that work, they still came out of that war without even doing anything successfully as the stronger power, just because their massive neighbour was now completely paralysed. Um, but yeah, Japan becomes a world power, uh, Germany gets strengthened, Russia is weakened, and as a result, Britain sees that maybe... Maybe Britain needs to ally with the weaker powers now. That's true, and that might be going back to its original policy of, yes. you know, keeping the balance. The balance of power, yeah, which was key to its policy all along, but never before had the balance of power really looked at Germany as the enemy as determinedly as they would in the years to come. Mm. Like, especially the year in 1905, when it became obvious that Russia was not Britain's enemy, simply because it didn't have the capabilities to compete with Britain anymore like it had before. So now we're lo- we're we're stuck with the situation now in 1905 where Britain is not really sure if it can look at Germany the same way. Russia mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. collapsing in on itself. Japan is expanding like crazy in the Pacific and has been vitalized by this victory, which is worrying America at the same time. Which France should be the point where America jumps on Japan as an ally. Yeah, well, should be for strategic reasons. This is what Britain does um, in as early as 1902. And that was why Germany thought it could get another war between Britain and Russia to happen, because Japan and Britain were allies. But as a result of Russia's weakening and Germany's strengthening, France is also weakened now internationally as a result. So this means Britain sees that France, if France is completely defeated by Germany and Germany reigns supreme, who's going to stop it except Britain? That's the that's the strategic concerns that Britain yeah, now has. Of course. And because of this, it has to ally with the weaker power out of necessity to stop Germany. And this contributes to, even if the rivalry and the the fact that they are enemies hadn't been exactly realised at this stage once Britain and France start to really cooperate and once the whole antagonism between Russia and Britain starts to dissolve there really is a sense that these two camps are drifting apart even if war isn't inevitable yet it could be possible in the future so the years before the war happens itself Mm -hmm. and after the Russo-Japanese war when this massive change in the international situation has occurred, is there anything that really springs to mind for you? Like anything that Germany does in in its change in foreign policy, maybe? Well, Germany was uh, happy to just stick its nose in things and sort mm. of uh, be the keep everybody looking over their shoulders to see if Germany was about to, to pull a quick one on them. Mm. Uh the, they became far more aggressive, far more in your face. Yes. This is what we want. Yeah. You're going to give it to us mm. in Europe and in the colonies. Yeah, so. especially towards France. Yeah. Especially towards France. And this was seen in the Morocco crises that took place in 1906 and 1912, I think it was. Yeah, and Morocco was like that. 
That they was did like, it twice mm. and expected the same result. Yeah. What were they thinking? Yeah. It's like <laughs> um, so there was a lot of a lot of aggression. You were right in their policy. Yeah. It was and ratcheted once, way up. Once that the international stage copped on to what they were doing, mm. they called their bluff. And, yeah. And we saw that that Germany mm. wasn't able to back its punches. Yeah. There is also key instances of the nations that are allied or soon to be allied with Britain being humiliated by Germany on the world stage. Oh, absolutely. If Germany wanted to make friends, it definitely didn't look like it wanted no, to. No, it didn't at all. I mean, it alienates it alienates France even further than possible. Like, it humiliates it at the mm. Moroccan crisis by threatening war. And then when Austria annexes Bosnia and Herzegovina and Russia protests, with under threats of war, Russia is forced to back down. So with that, those two examples there... Britain's two key allies are forced to back down. And that final act that I mentioned there with Russia, mm. that really pushes Russia into an alliance with Britain and France. Whereas before it was already allied with with France, now it was really starting to become convinced that, yes, I need to be the third power in this power block against Germany because that's the only way I can avenge myself. The fourth power. The fourth power? Japan. Well, yeah, that's true, yeah. Actually, that is interesting um, because people very rarely remember the Japanese either contribution or presence in World War One, and like I didn't yourself. like myself <laughs> just there. And I didn't even mention because it's so Eurocentric by its nature, because so much happens on the Western Front, which we'll see and have already seen. Hopefully, there is so little that is said about what Japan did, and it's not even seen when you think of the mm-hmm. when you think of the Triple Entente. You don't see Japan in it because Japan's on the other side of the world. Is Japan offended by that? I don't... Well, n- now or then? Then. Well, I don't know, because as as far as I know, it wasn't like anyone ever wrote down a thing and said, okay, it's the three of us against the three of them. But, I mean, um, Japan, just from, like, uh, culture shows or whatever, mm. from what I understand, they, they have this really high-based honor system mm. where it's like, is Europe shaming Japan by not... Or or was it actually being included mm. in these deals and in these? That that is a good question. It certainly debates. it certainly wasn't as tied to Britain as France would become tied to Britain. Mm. And as well as that, if you remember, the main reason the British Japanese alliance had been signed was to curb the power of Russia, and that had already been done. So that mean that that means that Japan basically had a free hand, and you could argue that Japan wasn't even that interested in what Germany oh, was doing. Of course not, and it, it didn't get much action. No, it, it didn't. didn't. It, it didn't get the invaded, key thing. Didn't get bombed. The key contribution that that Japan made to the First World War was capturing the Pacific bases that Germany had oh, and keeping okay. them until after the war. Tsingtao is the most important one. That was um, the Kaiser's favorite place because it was like. The representation of Germany expanding across the world. The and Kaiser the, shouldn't have favorite places. Yeah. He's such a child. <laughs> I know. Oh, this is where he I really went is. holidays. When yeah, I I, yeah, I describe him as like a petulant Kaiser, which you describe a child as petulant. You wouldn't yeah. describe a, world, a, a leader of a country as petulant. But that's what you have to do. Because, I bet he had like a little hissy fit when they told him. But the, the famous quote is that uh, Kaiser saying, I'd rather lose Berlin to the Russians than Sing Tao to the Japanese. Wow. Yeah, that's how important it was to him. Oh, he's such a child. I know, but he see, these imperial dreams were so woven into his mind because he'd been living in the shadow of Britain for so long. Mm. And in his mind, the only way to make Germany great was to have it 
as far across the world as possible. Yeah, Tsingtao was a big one for the Japanese. Basically, the Japanese did all the work and the British were made to look like they captured it because there's still elements of racism in here. Even yeah. though the... even though the, Well, the Japanese couldn't possibly fight a war. No, 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 no. We'll just put the British flag in and cover it over. <laughs> you know, use Photoshop. Use what? <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the breaking down of the international situation into war. Uh, well, this is the part that I actually missed out on, so mm. you can you fill okay, me well, so, well, I know I can start you off. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's go to uh, the Black Hand and the Austrian assassination of okay, the... Okay, yeah. Uh, Set the scene the for Kaiser, us. Kaiser, wasn't it? The no, Kaiser. the no, Archduke. They, that's right. Franz Ferdinand. That really, that event there, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, is famous. It's etched in history. But Austria couldn't sit back and do nothing. Austria couldn't take that insult. That no. was huge. Huge. Yeah, it was. And they had something to prove. Austria needed to prove itself, and it was being supported and egged on by Germany, which we'll cover in a sec, while Russia was giving its guarantees to these small Balkan states that were punching way above their weight. It's so impressive. I'm really, like, I'm chuffed that there were these small nations (laughs) still doing it for themselves in this power vacuum of of Europe, which... Mm. Everyone had elev- inflated themselves beyond proportion to yeah. normal nations these days should have. Absolutely, yeah. I, the the thing that really gets me though is the the misconception today that when people ask you why did World War One happen, a lot of people just say, "Oh, well, the Austrian Archduke was assassinated, so Austria declared war on Serbia." But there is so much more to it than that. So, like, is there anything for you that jumps to mind? There was this long pause while they debated what they would do. Yeah. Like, you're you're in a half mind to go, well, yes, Russia are are big and they're protecting these nations, but we can't let this go unpunished. Mm. And there's no international setting where these black hands can be punished. So we've only got the option of taking these yeah. guys out, hitting them where it hurts. Very true, and yeah. Proving that we're not to be taken lightly. Mm. Otherwise, you may as well assassinate the entire cabinet. Yeah, you're not going to fight back. Exactly. If you do that. Yeah, there was. It was really. It really was lose lose because to react would cause a massive series of chain reactions where alliances have been established over decades and they would all come crashing down. Or if you didn't do anything, your prestige in the world would be even lower than it already yeah, was. and Austria was looking... <laughs> Austria-Hungary were looking at the same place that Italy and Spain had just been given. And, like, they yeah. didn't want to take it. They no. were like, we're, we're not going to be... We're not going to be disregarded mm. by these tiny countries. We yeah. we have to do something, and yeah. I completely understand why they they made mm. their decision. But the interesting thing about it is, it wasn't just an Austrian decision. What's often forgotten is the German contribution to the Austrian decision. It's often stipulated, and it's often uh, argued that if Germany hadn't given its guarantee, the so-called blank check to Austria, mm. that Austria never would have acted in its own power at all because it would have been afraid of Russia by itself. But because Germany guaranteed Austria in this sense, and it said that it would back it up no matter what in the coming war, Austria felt confident enough to act and declared war on Serbia in the end of July 1914. And because of that, we know in hindsight what happened next, but it would have been fairly impossible at the time to predict that those alliances that had been set in place to guarantee peace would lead so almost hilariously to war and it was so bad as well because it wasn't like everyone declared war in this kind of set motion 
in a formal way. It was so haphazard and it was like a stumble towards war. Like everyone has guns at everyone's heads and everyone who doesn't have a gun is now looking for a way to get a gun by any means necessary. Mm. So with that said, now we're on to the war itself. And there's an interesting side note here, Sean, between me and you, where we covered, where we tried to cover the Marne, the Battle of the Marne, in a talk episode. Yeah, we did. Uh, you were you were desperate not to do it. Yeah. You were like, oh, please don't make me do it, please. <laughs> and I was like, well, we could try doing a talk episode. You were like, that's brilliant. Let's do it. And I had no idea what I was talking about. And, and neither did I. Zach, 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 Zach had no idea what he was trying to talk about. Oh. And I was like, so what happened? He was like, I have no idea. So I tried. So we, we talked oh. for about 20 minutes and then we were yeah. like, this isn't working. Yeah. This, you have no idea what's yeah. going on. I have no idea So what's I going basically, on. I had to just bring myself to actually study the battle itself. So the Battle of the Marne episode 20, in episode 20.5 over before Christmas was a very much a a struggle to get out there. So I hope you enjoyed it because for a while it was it was a very big issue for me because spending so long on the diplomacy to go towards war is quite difficult when you don't want to talk about war and you're far more interested in talking about what countries are doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so what guns were they using? <laughs> <laughs> go die. <laughs> um so I struggled through that until we got to nineteen fifteen. The importance of the Battle of the Marne itself can't be overstated because of what it did to Germany. Everything before 1914 was obsessed with the idea of the Schlieffen Plan. And the Schlieffen Plan was the idea... Pinpoint and wheel into yeah, France. The yeah. wheel was the strategic movement itself, but the idea that we attack France first and France collapses before Russia attacks us and then we attack Russia before it's finished mobilising, that was the key element of it. Mm. And because Germany was following that plan to the letter, it couldn't afford to let anything get in the way of it, which meant that in an interesting an interesting turn of events, when Serbia started to develop its army, um, Serbia was seen as a threat to the Schlieffen plan, so Germany became more aggressive towards Serbia, with the result that Austria felt more encouraged to act more aggressively towards Serbia as well, which led mainly to the declaration of war against it. Um, but a big deal as well was the fact that if anything came up that jeopardized the Schlieffen plan, such as Serbia again, then Germany would have to act fast. And once Russia started mobilizing its forces before the declaration of war had been made, that threw a huge spanner in the works because that wasn't even anticipated. It was expected that Germany could declare war on France first while Russia was mobilizing, not before. So then it was a race against time. The strategic concerns of Germany were that they would be overrun in the east while they were fighting in the west, so they had to move before that happened. But the Battle of the Marne was the nail in the coffin of the Schlieffen Plan because it meant that the war now would not be the one-two punch against France and Russia. It would be a slow and stagnant war that no one knew how to fight and that no one expected to fight, but that everyone would have to fight now for an unspecified length of time. Uh, This is understandable because no war had ever been fought like this before. No, it hadn't. No war had there been trenches dug with artillery pieces miles away with Mm. train tracks and these small railroads bringing troops and supplies Mm. up with such horrid diseases and morale just being so low on both sides. Yeah. I mean, there has never been a war and never will be a war so horrific and terrible. No, there really hasn't. And the the very fact alone that it lasted for 
so long, and you, you don't because for because the Second World War lasted six years. Saying that the First World War is worse in military terms, at least because of it lasting four years, you don't really get. No one really gets that. But after looking through each year in detail, just the endless. It, it even even though I know it ends in in late nineteen eighteen, it still feels like it's never going to end. <laughs> and that's yeah. not just because it took me three months to fully cover it. It really does feel like not only are the leaders making it up as they go along but that no one has any real end strategic idea of how to finish the war. Yeah. So it's going to carry on in the same way for as long as it takes before one side just either runs out of men or collapses in on itself at home, which actually happened in both respects in Germany in 1918. Yeah. So 1915 was the year of surprises for Germany because it was the year it made pretty big gains in the East while it was starting to launch... A few offensives, such as the Battle of the First Battle of Ypres, which was the first example of poison gas in the West in early 1915. So it was attacking in the West while it was making great gains in the East, which is completely opposite to the way it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a quick victory in the West and a very long fought war in the East. But as we'll see, almost the reverse of the Schlieffen Plan, because Russia collapses very quickly while the most important fighting of all takes place in the West. And the trend of 1915 is almost that it sets the stage for what Germany is going to have to do. It's going to have to contribute a lot more men to the Eastern Front, and it's going to only be able to attack on the Western Front when it's capable of doing so. And it's only going to be capable of doing so when the Eastern Front is quiet. So basically... Small ideas are starting to filter through about how best to wage the war, but they'll be turned on their head within a year. So let's talk about Gallipoli. Yeah, Gallipoli, that that was a good point. Gallipoli is probably the most uh, striking campaign, certainly, of 1915. It's one headed up by Churchill, right? Yes, it was. It was probably Churchill's darkest darkest hour and probably one of his worst moments he certainly did redeem himself needless to say later on in life later on he did a great job but yeah i think it's key that he had this experience Mm. to face defeat so horribly at the hands of the yeah and it was a horrible failure it was a horrible failure for a number of reasons but it really demonstrated not only the fact that the allies underestimated the ottoman empire but also that they were so grossly unprepared for a campaign launched somewhere else in the world that wasn't on the Western Front that involved the kind of logistics that would go along with the naval landing. It was just horrendous from the start. And it's remembered today for the awful losses that the Empire troops incurred, such as the the Australians and the Australians and the Canadians and New Zealand and the South Africans. And the awful the 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 really bad thing about it is I, I actually got I picked this up from a review on the Australian iTunes site, is that Whenever something goes wrong, there is a tendency within the British mindset, even today, to blame the Empire troops for it. Whereas if something goes right, particularly on the Western Front, very little is actually mentioned about the British uh, Commonwealth troops. So, for example, with Vimy Ridge, which is uh, an offensive that happens in 1917, a lot of that success was down to the Canadian Canadian Corps. Out of of, um, convenience more than anything else... The tendency is to just refer to it as a British victory. It should be pointed out that it wasn't the British 
super military might that that actually did the winning of the war mm. that it was actually it, the units within the commonwealth yeah. the, the men and individuals mm-hmm. from these colonies that have, that that had come back to fight these wars and that weren't being given the credit that that they were due and the credit was being given to the whole of Britain yeah now obviously Britain has a right to take credit for these because they are her tro- troops they are her subjects mm-hmm. but if they're being too faced with the whole situation of yeah. if it's a british victory it's a british victory if it's a british defeat who was involved can we blame them yeah. yes <laughs> that is what it comes down to there is actually a lot of stuff that's forgotten today about just how much the commonwealth and empire troops contribute to the british victory mm. and i really do think that to do them justice we need to remember the victories as well as the defeats and the defeats are never exclusively down to a single country especially in this war, because everyone contributes so much to every single continent and every single theatre, whether you see it or not. A good example of that, this is going to be seen in the future, is the Russian contingent in the Western Front, which no one really knows about. I had no idea they had troops on that side. Yeah, and because we see the the Russians collapse so... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Almost consistently throughout this war, we forget that they have troops pretty much everywhere. How are they fighting the Ottomans? Like the Ottomans as well. A yeah, joined attack between uh, Russia using the Slavic nations as its allies mm. and moving into to Turkey. And I, I presume that would have been on the cards as a joint venture between the allies. But that, as we can see from the battle itself, mm. that didn't materialize, and it was a crushing defeat. Yeah, you really do require a kind of a map to look at all areas at 
at all stages of the war to be able to understand what's going on. Like, the Balkans is so confusing because Bulgaria, who was a Russian ally for the longest time, is a member of the Central Powers in the First World War. So it is actually one of the major players in the Balkans, and it is one of the major reasons Russia isn't able to realise success. One of the major, major forgotten reasons, really, because the Bulgarian contribution enables Austria and Germany to not have to place as many troops in the Balkans as they would have, because Bulgaria really does hold a lot of Russia at bay. Mainly because Russia's tactics in the region are so inconsistent and pretty much reminiscent of everywhere else that they fight in. (laughs) I mean, they have the manpower, but they just don't have the tactics to carry out successes. But if they're facing in the Caucasus is the main place that they're facing off against the Ottomans. And this just shows how global the war is. The Caucasus region was the place where a lot of the Armenian genocide took place. That is the second worst example of genocide in history, second only to the Holocaust, in that over 750,000 Armenians were just killed for no reason whatsoever. Don't you just hate that? Yes, you do. <laughs> it's, it's just like, we're fighting a war that happened for no reason. I've come to, I've come to like, when, pe- when I'm, I tell people, oh yeah, I'm listening to a podcast that Zach does. And they're like, oh, really? What's it about? I'm like, oh, it's about the First World War. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what's it like? It's like, well, everybody dies for no reason. Yeah, that's basically No reason, it. No at, reason all. at all. <laughs> and this is probably the worst example of it. But it's eerily similar to the Holocaust in that the Armenians were like the Ottoman scapegoat. And in the Armenian, the Ottomans saw their potential enemy. And through the use of propaganda and other means... And through losses that they could blame on the Armenians, the Armenians began to gain this almost beyond hated status, like loathing, I think is probably a really good word to use. They hated them so much. And because of that, they were blinded to the fact that the worst atrocities imaginable were carried out on them. And still, it's not properly um, either recognized or respected today. Armenia and Turkey are still not completely... Uh, happy over the way it had been yeah 1916 and 1917 in that sense were years that saw the war darken in a sense because now civilians are being targeted on a wide range and even though this had happened before in belgium in the germans moved through belgium it was seen in its worst extent here and the Germans suffered as well in their international reputation because they were seen as the ally of the ottomans and because they didn't do anything directly at least to stop it or anything that was seen that they did to stop it they were they came off worse as a result so that was a big deal as well but exclusively in terms of in terms of the russians it it does go back to history the 1877 turk russo turkish war a lot of the successes and gains made by the russians there and the land that was taken by the russians at the end of that war the major turkish goal was to take that land back and they did actually do that in 1917 simply because of the Treaty of Rest-Litovsk yeah. that took Russia out of the war. Uh, quick question. What was uh, Afghanistan, British colony, mm. what was it doing on the Eastern Front? Afghanistan is an interesting uh, is an interesting case because there are a certain number of nations at the start of the 20th century that are kind of accepted anomalies. Like Ethiopia is a good example of countries that are not touched by the empires of the world and just will not ever be. Persia is another good example. Persia, which would encompass Iran and Iraq, 
Um, Afghanistan, I'm pretty sure, is separate from Persia in this case, in that when British records refer to Afghanistan, they refer to it separately to Persia, because for the longest time, Persia was seen as pretty much the buffer region between what Russia owned in Asia and what Britain owned in India. So their land was strategically important, but in terms of owning it, it wasn't actually that important. And Britain would recognize this, as would Russia, so they didn't see the need to actually invade the area. Except for later on, when oil becomes more and more of a concern. But at this stage, Britain had its oil reserves secure in the Middle East, where it had the Suez Canal, so it didn't really need to move into Persia as much as one might think it would. Now, an interesting thing, why didn't Persia get in on this world stage and, and start fighting the Ottomans? It sounds like if they're untouched that they could be a power player. Was there not the same sort of mentality of colonialism there or what? were they just going to stay out of this war completely? Well, Persia, I'm not going to say that it stayed out of the war completely because there was there was a good bit even after even after the First World War with the settlements there when the Ottoman Empire became Turkey, there was a good bit of um, shifting back and forth between the borders as the Allies tried to kind of like create out of Persia, Iran and Iraq right. and Saudi Arabia and other other countries. So to do that, it caused a good bit of friction between Turkey and Persia, which is a, which is a story in itself and really does deserve its own kind of podcast because a, new, a number of wars resulted off that. Interesting side note. Um, I once met a man who who was from one of these Stan nations, mm. but he, he called himself Persian as if he was rejecting the, the new... Uh, separation of the countries. Wow. Well, which was, I was really surprised. Mm. I, I thought, well, surely, because in my mind, those countries have always been their own yeah. nations, but it seems like there might be some sort of mm. nationalist unity sort of idea that, yeah. that hasn't died down, that, mm. that they're all Persian that at is heart. It, yeah, that is interesting. I'd never really thought about that, but you, you have to remember, Persia had been Persia for the longest time. I mean, obviously not in the sense that it was the Persian Empire, but it was a handy catch-all term for all these countries. A lot of the shahs or the rulers that would have been in control of Persia would obviously have to have been approved by Britain itself. And there was a very big sense that even though Persia was supposed to be neutral, of course Britain was allowed to move through its territory if it needed to. And the Ottomans, because they were so close to Persia, there would be a lot of fighting in between Persia and the Ottoman Empire and the British Empire just to get to India. Mesopotamia as well, just that general region was pretty much rife with conflict during this time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a lot handier to call it Persia and Mesopotamia rather than calling it the individual countries because they didn't really exist at the time and there wasn't yeah. really the sense that we are from Saudi Arabia, we are from Iraq, etc. And what about uh, Egypt? Did Egypt contribute? What what happened to it at the beginning of the war? Why wasn't it used mm. as a focal point for the Allies' movements? Well, that's the thing. You see, what is often forgotten is just how important Egypt was, mainly because of the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal was a key a key waterway. So were the Ottomans, did the Ottomans move on to Egypt at the beginning of the war? Or? Oh, yeah. So, they tried to, anyway. Right. Once, once it became obvious just how important Suez was for British Empire trade and for its security... Um, a real British presence started to emerge in Egypt. And as a result, they had to protect it from any external threats. The major one being at this time, the Ottoman Empire, who was determined to wrest this control of the area away because if they could take Egypt, they could block Suez. And if they could mm. do that, they could cut India off. Now, this is this has really set the scene well for the Ottomans, which mm. is something that we, we didn't really get into in your actual podcast. Mm. But just the question on Gallipoli, 
why was Gallipoli the best option for the Allies? Hmm. And would there have been a better way? Yeah, well, that it, see, it's easy for us to say in hindsight that Gallipoli failed horrendously because of X or because of Y. But at the time, even though the Western Front was so chaotic and even though the Battle of Ypres was going on and so many casualties had been incurred, there was the real belief within the Franco-British-Italian, soon-to-be Italian anyway, alliance. There was the real belief there that the Ottoman Empire was the sick man of Europe, but that it like kind of mutated into the idea that it was the soft underbelly of the central powers. All we had to do was kick down the kick down the door and the whole thing would fall down. And from the Ottoman Empire we could move up then through Asia Minor and take out the Salonican front there and basically reinforce our whole grand strategy and really mount a kind of unified defense mm. against Germany and isolate it further. Because if you could take over Constantinople, etc., mm. and if we could, if they could secure the Dardanelles Straits, then through that you could secure Russia and you could isolate Germany and Austria even further. Yeah, there that was that was the main goal. I mean, they had obviously no idea what they were getting themselves into, but there was the real belief that the Ottoman Empire was so weak and it was in such turmoil, not just in Asia Minor itself, but in the Middle East and in the nationalist Arab regions that all we had to do was invade and the whole thing would just collapse. Mm. I think the best way to explain it is it just comes down to a bit of ignorance on the part of the Allies. Okay. That they genuinely did believe that the Ottomans were an easy an easy mark to take and that it would be far easier to strike there and knock out the key central powers ally. Because as weak as Turkey was believed to be, it was still very strategically placed. Yes. Uh, especially like in the world and for the central powers' objectives themselves. If you take out Turkey, then you take out one of the main threats to the British Empire in yeah. India. So yeah. then all those troops could be moved back into the region to take on a lot of what the Germans tried to do once Russia collapsed. Now, uh, question. What were the plans for dividing the Ottoman Empire after mm. the if the invasion was successful? Yeah. Was that going to be split between just France and Britain, or was there going to be a contingent for Russia to take mm. in in part as well? I think the best way to answer that question is to look at the way things unfolded after the First World War themselves, when the Ottoman Empire really did collapse, and look at what Britain and France did there. I do think that the Allies, they genuinely wanted to create a Turkish state but they also had to be aware of Greece because Greece wanted a, a unified Greek nation that would have included Constantinople and some territories in Asia Minor. Right. So there would have been the need to pacify them. The post-war negotiations will see that, that the Greek nationalists do try to manoeuvre for such a state as that. And it's there's a lot of negotiation that goes on hmm. before the Greek declaration of war itself and after the war is ended. Now, you said Greek Declaration of War. Did they join the First World War, or was this a post-war war? Well, there's actually two instances of the Greeks declaring war. The first is in mid-1917. You see, Greece itself is a very divided country. The king himself was pro-German and didn't want to be uh, on the side of the Allies. He wanted to either be a friendly neutral towards Germany, or he didn't yeah. want to be in the war at all. Okay. It was it was a case of getting him out because the Salonican front, which stretched from pretty much the borders of Greece to the borders of pretty much all along the Adriatic, was where the Allies were desperately holding on against the Austrians. And all the Balkans were held by that Salonican front. So Greece was very important to the Allies. So what the attempts were made to kick out that king, King Constantine I, I think his name was, and bring in his son as the ruler instead... 
uh, King Alexander the First, I think his name was as and well. He's pro nationalist, pro. He's pro. Colonialism. He'd be pro ally, but at the same time, the country remained divided, and a sort of civil war started to okay. erupt. But it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't so much a civil war in the sense that a civil war actually went on while all this was happening. It was more a civil war in that the pro allied camp won out because they were just able to gain more influence over the population and right. the use of propaganda as well is key in this case because yeah. what's often forgotten is just how effective the allied propaganda machine was uh, in making germany seem like a threat to the greeks and also the huge issue of greece uh wanting as i said a, a unified greek state or greek empire yeah. yeah um and they couldn't do that they felt so long as the ottomans were there and look at that germany is siding with the ottomans who's our natural enemy yeah yeah so sure. there so there was a lot of that in the region as well. So the allies had to had to pacify these elements by promising Greece a certain amount of things which okay. they couldn't deliver on. They and could, they didn't actually give in in the end. Well, they didn't give in in the end, but the the need almost to get in on the action while the war was going on was so strong within uh, the pro-allied camp in Greece that once Alexander, who was the pro-Allied king in Greece, mm-hmm. got to the throne, he was almost immediately whisked away and imprisoned in his own court, while Republican elements within Greece itself started to bring the country more and more towards the Allied camp so that Greece could be on the side of the Allies. Right. The first time they declare war is 1917. Yes. Post-war, they declare war again? Yes. Post-war, they declare war on Turkey. In, okay. And in, in the attempt to realise these dreams for... Uh, a Greek nation. It fails miserably. Despite the depressing Turkish experience in the war, um, Turkey is still still able to defend itself, particularly in Cyprus is where the war starts. Mm. That's where the main agitation between the Turkish-Greek camps is. But Greece is just unable to become victorious in the war. And as a result, it doesn't really achieve anything. And it kind of slips into a type of dictatorship. Okay. What comes to your mind when you think of 1916? Well, it was the year of the Irish Rising, of course. Yeah. Apart from that, I First World War, I've got no idea. The Somme Offensive in 1916 is probably the defining British act of the First World War for a number of reasons. Um, number one, because it was so catastrophic in terms of lives lost. And number two, because it really didn't achieve all that much. Um, and in even in the British mindset today, it's very much alive. And it's I think it's one of the key... One of the key events in the First World War for Britain because they had to, there was this feeling that they had to find significance in the loss of the Somme. The Somme is really important for the British uh, military mindset, and not just military mindset, but also kind of emotional experience from the First World War because of what happened in the Somme. The Somme is so infamous today for uh, mismanagement, for huge casualties that were completely unnecessary, and for just woefully inadequate preparations and in all cases all of the losses and all of the things that were done wrong could have been done right and I think that's the main tragedy of the Somme. Another thing to remember about the Somme while the British were on the offensive in the north in Flanders the French were on the defensive in the south in Verdun and this is what I found interesting about 1916 while 1914 and 1915 and 1917 and 1918 are all years when you can be like, well, the Allies were on the offensive here, the Allies were on the defensive here, etc. 1916 is really a mixed bag. I want to mention 
uh, the Netherlands. So if we can talk about the Dutch and their contribution, that'd be great. So yeah, sure, go ahead. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what happened. I have no idea what they did during the war. Okay. I presume their trade was disrupted greatly, and that that might have provoked them into yeah. actually making an offensive. Now, which side would they have come down on? Would oh. they have been nationalist in terms of their Germanic sort of people? They're not mm. Germanic, but they are in that same brotherhood mm. of, of language group. Yeah. So would they have had sympathies for the German offensives or but would they have found all of this instability mm. in Europe enough to just have them join the side that's yeah. willing to try end it quickly. The problem with asking, the problem with even thinking about who was siding with the Germans and who wasn't, is that it changes so much each year, mainly because Germany conducts itself so badly on the world stage in World War One between the Belgian atrocities and then it's it's almost silenced during the Armenian genocides. It really doesn't paint it in a very good picture to the extent that the Allies look like they're crusading for justice and for peace, while the Germans look like they're crusading for world domination. So maybe initially, maybe there would have been a few Dutch elements within the Netherlands that maybe would have sided with Germany. I'm not entirely sure. But one thing I do know for sure is that by 1916, the Netherlands would definitely have sided with the Allies, as would have Denmark and as would Spain. Like, any neutrals at the, at by 1916 would have been in no way uncertain about who they would have sided with. And Germany, Germany's duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff at this stage, would have had no doubts about who they would have sided with had they entered the war. Therefore, there was this desperate need to keep everyone out of the war, because they would either be neutral or they would be against us. And that's just the way it was going to go. Right. So, is Germany still behaving in that... It- intimidating foreign policy Mm. where they're going we have more soldiers than you we have better tactics we are the best so keep your noses out is that what they were is that how they were negotiating with the Netherlands and Spain and Denmark I think there there was a sense of that but there was also like if you look at not just those smaller neutral countries but also on the wider scale such as America there was a real almost amateurism when it came to dealing with foreign countries almost like Germany didn't know how to keep countries neutral in, in in the war. I mean, the Netherlands stayed neutral, and so did Denmark, and so did Spain. Thank God, because yeah. <laughs> that would, but, it would ruin their countries, and yeah, beautiful countries. Yeah, but at the same time, there was... I, I doubt, I very much doubt that if, if, if Germany hadn't insulted Denmark and the Netherlands to the extent that they were going to declare a war in 1916 or 17, then they probably weren't going to declare a war. I mean, it had to. there had to be a very specific reason for declaring war, which does sound strange. I mean, you get the sense, especially in the Balkans, that everyone wanted in on the war. As we said, in, in Greece, there was the real sense within Greece that in order to capitalize on the spoils within the Balkans, Greece really had to declare war. But there was very little of that in the Netherlands and in Denmark. Even though their trade had been severely restricted by the British blockade of Germany, there was really the sense that we don't want in on this war, but if we did we would really cause headaches for you. And the duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff knew that they would. The Netherlands had at least 500,000 troops to spare. And that could be thrown into a front where the Germans really didn't have anything there to stop them. Now, would were the Dutch hindering the British from landing on that coast and using that front Mm. as as a new port of entry? Because in i know in the in the previous war when when uh, france was dominating europe mm. the the dutch 
and their ports were very important to British strategy mm. and very important in trying to take down the French armies. Yeah. It, were the Dutch just remaining so neutral that they refused to allow passage of troops and mm. trade well, through their there, ports? There was a bit the of that. Nations? There was a bit of that now, but at the same time, Dutch neutrality only meant much if it suited Britain. And that can be seen in the pre-war planning where if if it was required... Britain was perfectly willing to violate Dutch neutrality if it meant that they could protect Belgium or they could protect their own strategic interests in the French mainland faster. Mm. And they were perfectly willing to, if if the Germans, in fact, violated Dutch neutrality, then the British were going to do the same. So if, the, if, if within the German plans there was an element where they would, just for strategic reasons, violate Dutch neutrality so that they could occupy that coastline... Then the do- then the British were not going to sit back and say, "Well, we're not going to do the same." So we're all going to play by the same standard, and if yes. you play dirty, we'll play dirty. Exactly. Yeah, there was a good we bit can, of we that. We can kind of see that with the gas, yeah, the gas warfare. Yeah, that they were using that's well. very true. Yeah, I don't know if they would have used it had the Germans not started it. Mm. Well, that's a good question. Yeah, but certainly once one side used it, all bets were off those rules went pretty much out the window because they started it, as this is the classic argument. Yeah. So we can do it now. But yeah, I I did mention because in 1916 and 17 so much was happening around Germany that there was the real fear that the neutrals in, in particular Netherlands and Denmark, that could really cause the most damage. Probably Denmark more so with its naval contribution, maybe not so much with its army. But certainly with the Dutch, they had the navy as well. Obviously not as big a naval player as Germany or Britain was, but certainly they could do their own share of damage. But they also had the army as well. And at this stage, everyone had giant armies for strategic as well as security reasons. So the duo knew that in order to secure that border with the Netherlands, they would have to sort out their deals with Romania and also Russia, which they couldn't do by the end of 1916. Now, I'm sure it's also useful to have a neutral economy that, that can k- remain afloat and can yeah. trade with you so it can mm. give you all of your uh, dairy products, which, yeah. is the, which is the first thing that springs to mind, and can send you tulips because they're not ravishing <laughs> their fields for grain. And yeah. I'm sure the Dutch did well out of it, getting a good good amount of trade through it. But oh, I don't know I'm if, sure, if there yeah. There was rationing. Like, there was rationing in all the other countries where there was war. Mm. I'm sure uh, there was rationing in the Netherlands as well. Oh, everyone certainly did suffer, that's for sure. I mean, nowhere, you couldn't go anywhere in the world without feeling at least some impact of the war. And that's purely because of the wide-reaching nature of the empires in Europe themselves. I mean, pretty much everywhere Britain was, there was going to be some kind of war. And any countries that were neutral, odds are they they either bordered a British Empire territory or they bordered someone who bordered a British Empire territory. Interesting. Yeah. As well as that in India, the big surprise India posed to the British Empire was that it wasn't going to take the advantage of of Britain in its difficult time to rebel and try and gain for itself a measure of independence. Instead, you see the Indian mindset is we help the British as much as possible and then after the war, they will grant us what we are deserved. That That was what the Irish believed as well for a time until a certain group of extremists ruined it. Well, we both have our opinions on, on Ireland and 
I don't think unless we do a special mm. in the if we're still around in 2016 <laughs> we can do an anniversary special mm. but I don't think we can share those opinions till we reach there and we might regain some patriotism by the time we get there so who knows perhaps yeah. we'll our faith in the country <laughs> will be restored by then um, but until then I for the sake of not having a bomb under my car yeah I'd like to not uh, share my views with you at this time <laughs> <laughs> so we move on now to 1917 which was in many cases, it was a defining year for a number of reasons. The first one that springs to mind for me is the change within Germany that started to take place at this time, mainly within the top of German command itself. I spend yeah. a lot of time looking at Hindenburg and Ludendorff just because the stories that surround them, I think, are so fascinating. And they give such a, a fantastic portrayal of Germany during war because of how fanatic Hindenburg and Ludendorff were and how how incredibly in control they were of every single facet of Germany at this time. They had a tremendous amount of influence, even while Germany was supposed to be an autocracy under the control of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Yeah. So that was very interesting for me because 1917 is really the year that Germany t Germany turns itself into a country, not just that's fighting total war, but into a country that is thoroughly owned by the duo. And that was something I found really fascinating to see develop. But also, for other reasons as well, it's a year of feverish diplomacy, both in the collapse of Russia and in the entry of the War of America. Hoorah! Let's talk about America, the emergent superpower. Mm. Um, I can actually talk about uh, the American Navy, which I know we've spent a lot of time on Navy, but I I'm, I'm quite interested in Navy. Uh, I had no idea you were interested in navies. Dude, I like boats. No, oh, I didn't uh, know that. <laughs> Reed didn't know that at all. <laughs> um, so, there's this there's this board game, okay? Mm -hmm. I know. It's a board game. I, I love board games. Uh, it's... I can't remember exactly what it was, but it, it, this there's this American board game or called Floor Games, and you, you basically you have these uh, scale ships, really quite large ships, and mm -hmm. you use ballrooms to, to play on them. The American generals <laughs> and admirals and uh, would actually play this game, and they really uh, the it was respected by the naval circles of the of the Americas, and so they they enjoyed playing this strategy naval game with what, each other. What would you do in the game? Oh, you'd set up these large boats on the floor and then you'd move them around. You'd measure off perfect trajectories of cannonball fire or huh. artillery fire. Like, it was very precise and yeah. exact. So you'd, you'd have all your angles, your wind varyings, your speed in knots, the, the angle your sails are at, mm. the speed at which your crew can function, everything. Yeah. Wow, that really goes against the idea that the duo had of... America as this nation who had just no idea of how to use a navy at all. Well, I mean, maybe, yes, they have no idea what they're doing, but they're really good at, at playing board games and mm. enjoy playing that sort of strategy Well, e even the fact that they're interested in navies goes against what the duo were thinking, because the duo were so wrapped up in this idea of America as a, a former colony, they still refused to give it the kind of recognition it deserved as a superpower. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe because they were in denial... But to the very last moment, they would not acknowledge the fact that America really could do what it was capable of doing. In, uh, most particularly in terms of navies, while they were so hung up on the idea of unrestricted submarine warfare, which they really, really were for a long time. So, in the build-up to war, was America... Like, I know today they are the military superpower. Yeah. But was America really 
uh, upping its production of soldiers like all the rest of the European powers? Or was it sort of keeping its isolation up and sort of staying focused on itself? America before 1914 was so isolated from Europe that it didn't even know very few in America actually knew why war had happened. And I mean, like, even today we say we don't know why it happened. But I mean, like, we can explain the events. But very few people in the top brass of the American administration knew why war had broken out in Europe. And because there wasn't that close Anglo-American alliance that we know of today, very little intelligence had been swapped between the two sides. And you also have to remember, this was before the German atrocities and the German unrestricted submarine warfare had turned the American public against uh, Germany. So it was a very divided country as well in terms of who it would support. Yeah, so they're, they're, its former master yeah. or potentially its new master. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there wasn't really any sense of we know what's going on or we know who we're going but to support. But then again, right, America is a country of British men turn rogue. If they're English speaking, their mm. you know, their heritage is England. Yeah. So, I mean... In if anything, their origins should allow them to easily side with the Well, British. you see, you would think that, but the problem is that America is a country of immigrants over history, German and particularly Irish immigrants. The problem with that is it creates so many and different Italian lobby groups. As well, Italian yeah. as well, Italian, mm. Middle Eastern, everything. So because it's such a mixed bag and a melting pot... And lots pot, of liberal blacks. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, sure as well. Yeah. So, which, which probably had they had a lot of resentment against the colonial powers that had had originally brought them there, or their and brought their ancestors there. So, well, sure. So it was very hard to appease. Like the major group was the Irish American lobby group, who did not want under any circumstances, especially after 1916, where yeah. the Rising had been crushed, and they felt the major chance for Irish independence had gone. There was this real sense that there is no way in hell we are going to support the British effort against Germany because Germany is the best chance Ireland has for achieving its own form of Republican independence. Yeah. And because they were Irish Americans, they believed in a Republican freedom for Ireland, just like America had. They did not believe in a kind of dominion status that um, that Ireland would see. Yeah. They did not believe in that at all. So yeah. the idealism surrounding Republicanism and an Ireland ruled by a president along the same lines as America that was a very big and real issue. Like, that is a massive tangent, but still. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand. I mean, and then you've got Italians who are like, well, we're part of this triple alliance, and maybe they're, they're not sure where, where they sit anymore, yeah. because before the Italians side with the Allies, mm. they probably knew that they were in this triple alliance yeah. with Germany, and they didn't know where they... They would have been out of the loop. They wouldn't mm. know where they stood in that alliance anymore. Yeah, and they sure. wouldn't have realized that their decaying power in mm. their actual country themselves, where they've come from, yeah. was to the point that they were no longer seen as, as a... They were seen as a dead weight mm. within this triple alliance. Yeah. So. America had its own problems as well. There was a lot of civil rights issues. Not to the extent that we're seen in the 1960s, but there was certainly a lot of Native Americans like who still had a realized presence in the form of their descendants... And that was pretty much a black mark on America in that way mm. because it was still visible and it was still there. There was also the Wild West, although it was pretty much dead at this stage like in in terms of the, the romanticized Wild West that we know of in, in the Clint Eastwood movies. Like, it was dead in that sense, but certainly it was not the, the completely cultivated, industrialized America that burst into World War II. This is still a very agricultural, rural society that is very separate from itself 
and very far away and in a lot of places it depends on which city you live in which town you live in or who your family members are that really does determine who you support not necessarily who the president supports or who america's national policy supports now america had colonies at this time do those colonies when the war starts do they join in with this war yes they do so are there actually American divisions on the Western Front that were made up of colonies of America? That's actually a good question. I do not think you would have seen Filipino divisions or Cuban divisions or Puerto Rican no, divisions. Correct us if we're wrong. Because yeah, of course. We don't want to take away any credit to, yeah, to those. Yeah, but as far as I units, know, but... certainly not Filipino anyway, because the Philippines was seen as a very dangerous but strategically important American territory, and the nationals there who lived in the Philippines would not have been trusted with a rifle to have served under the American colors because they were believed as completely um, disloyal to the American cause let's say when did uh texas join was that 1800s or 1840s late 1840s okay, cool yeah i was just wondering if it was still prancing around by itself oh no no not at this stage <laughs> um but actually that brings us to an interesting point mainly how completely ignorant of the situation germany was when it sent the zimmerman telegram because as per the terms of the zimmerman telegram the way they were trying to coax mexico into declaring war in america was by promising it its former territories in California, in Arizona, and all along there in Texas as well, completely forgetting the fact that 50 years after the Mexican-American War, those former Mexican states, let's just say, had completely forgotten their former Mexican roots. And only in the, only in the sense that, they, that a few of them spoke Spanish would have really have felt that America was their home now and no amount of Mexican pressure could have changed that and that's forgetting the fact that Mexico was not even in the slightest sense militarily capable of applying that pressure in the first place. So basically Zimmerman Telegram is a fantastic opportunity for America for its casus belli against Germany because it's the most ridiculous out-of-touch telegram I think sent in the history of Germany's existence because it's so out of touch with everything that's going on Bismarck on the ground. turned in his grave. He must have, because anyone who does this kind of thing does their research beforehand. And it was so obvious, reading the source file, that Zimmerman did not do any of such research at all. And the duo, having okayed the telegram, no matter what they said, they definitely okayed it in their position, they didn't do their research either. Uh, question on uh, Canada... With the Canadians going to war, do you think that if you were an American and you wanted to fight in this war, would there have been people moving or even traveling to Canada to join these units? Because mm. I know in the Second World War, the Irish traveled to the north mm. to join these Northern Irish divisions is to ver- join yeah, the war. That is a very good question. And actually, I have seen a few examples of that happening, especially in New England, in that area there where a lot of them would have sympathised mainly with Britain. There yeah. was a big sense that even in the early stages for certain for certain British sympathisers who lived in America, and there was a good few, don't get me wrong, just because there was an Irish lobby group doesn't mean there was no one who sympathised with Britain. There was the real sense that we have to help Britain in its time of need. And because of the lax rules, which are infamous throughout the British and French and anywhere else recruiting uh, soldiers during this time, the rules were very lax. If you were of adequate health and adequate age, you could pretty much apply. And it was very easy to convince the recruiters of your national 
heritage. Like, there, you didn't have to jump through a particular amount of hoops, because especially later on in the war... Yeah, where they were trying to implement conscription, even in Ireland. Yeah, was, which didn't go very well at oh, all. No, I'm not sure of the numbers at all, so if anyone does have them, then by all means send them to me, but it was by no means black and white. That's now, basically what uh, I'm saying. Was America being sympathetic to both sides, or was mm. it... Tra- because we'll notice that the, the Germans see America as a threat by mm. supplying the British. Mm. So I'm wondering, does America sympathize with Britain more so than it does with Germany? And if they've already picked that stance, mm. surely German strategy shouldn't be to push it any further. Oh, well, you think that, you see, but this is the problem again. Once the duo takes control, they start to adopt the same aggressive foreign policy that got Germany in the mess in the first place. And that's seen in the various incarnations of unrestricted submarine warfare that pushed America further and further away and convinced American statesmen that the best way to deal with Germany is to ostracize it from the worldwide community. And to do that, they would they upped their trade with Britain. the Entente powers. Okay. But, at, at, but at the beginning of the war, they were trading with both and didn't have any animosity towards the Germans. Not so much, but the various the various mistakes that Germany makes and the various mistakes it makes in portraying itself on the world stage really made the sympathizers for Germany think twice about their advocation of a neutral policy towards Germany. And very soon you start to see a friendly neutrality develop towards Britain and the Entente powers for the sole reason that Germany is conducting itself so badly. Now, I'm sure it was also British policy to get America on side. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was a two-way street. Germany was, just as badly as Germany was conducting itself towards America, Britain was ingratiating itself towards America wherever possible. And so Mm. was France and so was Italy. There was a real sense that America was the bottomless pit of resources. And in order to exploit this, we had to be on their good side. And the American fear of war in terms of sacrificing its men in Europe for no real reason was offset by the enormous amounts of propaganda being sent into America by Britain, which portrayed Germany as the aggressor and the villain of the world. And it was far more... I mentioned briefly, I quoted, I think it was Robert Asprey, who pointed out that if Germany had spent as much time exploiting the American fear for sacrificing its youth on the fields of Europe as it had for ostracizing America from its foreign policy, then it would have had a far better time of it because there was a large anti-war camp within America that was ripe for exploitation through the kind of propaganda Britain used to turn it around. So if it had done that, they would have seen rich rewards. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, you know, old colonial master, you could have easily have played that card and got America on side. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's it's it's, we, it's that recurring theme of aggressive mm, foreign policy that yeah. really digs this hole for Germany. And yeah. as you said earlier, it puts the nail in the coffin mm. for Germany by insulting these Americans and by restricting their trade using submarines, mm. by basically sticking its nose in and trying to dictate everybody else's policy. It creates enemies everywhere. Yeah. And um, we have <laughs> to point out as well, not just in the case of America, but elsewhere... Germany was turning neutrals against it. I mean, look at Brazil, and even further in that case, look at Portugal, who in Portugal in 1915 was forced into the war because Germany declared war on it. Like, it wasn't even a case of um, we have a choice in the matter because Germany declared war on Portugal once it became obvious that Portugal was treating Germany's ships as if Portugal were a power against Germany. Yeah. And Brazil, on the other hand, declared war on Germany 
because of its unrestricted submarine warfare. So the duo's policies were making Germany no friends, but even before the duo were thoroughly in power, Germany was doing itself no favours anyway. And as I said, by that stage, German propaganda was writing itself. There was very little that the Allies had to do to portray Germany as the enemy, except for bombard the neutral countries with stories of what Germany was doing. They needed another Bismarck. All of this could have been prevented by a powerful leader in Germany. If they had that leader before yeah. the turn of the century, I think they could have rescued the situation all it took done was, a lot Yeah, all it took was one person who had a coherent policy, who wasn't afraid to stand up to Wilhelm, and who was so indispensable that they couldn't be removed because they were so important in the international situation. I mean, Bismarck was a great guy, but he lasted so long because he kept threatening resignation to get his way, and Wilhelm's grandfather... William I knew that how indispensable Bismarck yeah. was. He knew he couldn't let him go, so he let him away with a lot of things. All Germany needed was someone who was not afraid to stand up to the duo's influence and curb their influence, and who was trying to redeem Germany, and who ensured that Germany conducted itself sensibly. 1917, that was the introduction of the Americans, yes? Yes, and it was also the collapse of Russia. Mm-hmm. Russia, in this case, is... It really is the the what-if of the war, in my opinion, because a lot of the German success initially was found in Russia. Okay, well, let's let's just start all the way back with Japan-Russia. Let's start from there. Really? I think so. I think if we're going to talk about it, we should talk... I know it, we already discussed it in pre-war, mm. but um, uh, Japan-Russia really marked Russia to be the uncertain player in the First World War. Yeah. you weren't sure anymore that was this just the Eastern Front of Russia being poor and would the Western Front be good? And was it, even though it was slow to mobilize, was there just, what was going on with mm. this country? And the 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 sort of uh, nationalist stuff that was starting to come up at the time and the anti-Czar sort of feelings that the people were starting to, to build, all of this stuff was sort of under the the cover of mm. Russia's so big. So you, yeah. you, you could understand why Germany didn't expect, mm. you know, this sort of collapse yeah. or this turnaround where they they actually have such great early success. Yeah, well, even even within about... Even though, as I said, the German, the German strength in Europe really did increase after the Russian defeat and the mm-hmm. Russia-Japanese war, within about five or six years the fear of Russia within German circles had returned because Russia was recovering. And this really, as we saw, major strategic concerns towards Russia was a major contributing factor towards the German declaration of war on Russia. But Russia in the First World War did not act as, as Germany suspected it would. I mean, there was, apart from the initial advance into East Prussia that occurred in late 1914 while Germany was rampaging across Belgium and Flanders. Apart from that, Russia really does not make as much gains and it does not strike fear into the hearts of Germany as it's supposed to do. And in many ways, the Schlieffen plan is completely reversed because instead of defeating the West and then turning East, you're defeating the East and then turning West. So it just goes to show how unpredictable the war is. Yeah, yeah. And no one could have predicted... 
that Russia was going to collapse due to these nationalist movements. No, and I'm sure people assumed that after the horrendous experience of the Russo-Japanese War, Russia was going to turn its strategic Modernize, command. Yeah, yeah, it was going to turn itself around. A lot of what, a lot of like what the Ottoman Empire did, where it got German help, but it needed German help. Yeah, and I don't think France was going to give it that. I well, don't maybe think the not. British, British as as an ex enemy of Russia, mm. they weren't going to give them that either. No. So, in terms of Russian military, it didn't have the right allies to become mm. the military superpower that it needed to be to yeah. fight this war. Yeah, that that is that is I can understand the point there, but I also see that the major point between the Franco-Russian alliance was the massive loans France was floating to Russia. Yeah. So in my opinion, if they were willing to float such massive loans, they would have been willing, I'm sure as well, to train Russians in the same way that the Franco-British alliance were training their soldiers and maybe modernize their armies and maybe help them in that way. I think the problem was Russia was too proud to think uh, yes. that it needed that yes. help. It's definitely, especially the way the, you know, the Tsar behaves himself, the way he mm. demands all of these colonial advances into the Middle East and into the, the yeah sure the Asian provinces. Mm. He just seems to think that Russia is the greatest nation on earth, and he is its king, and he can do whatever he likes. And he's just, it's ignorance, and it's ignorance... Uh, coupled with racism because yeah. it's just they're too proud to be able to accept any help from anyone mm. I think that's that's really why the nationalist uprising happened and why communism really set in heavily for Russia mm. well because the Russian way of ruling itself was completely outdated by the mid by the early 20th century so when it collapsed it collapsed in such a horrendous rapid way because there, by that stage the Russian people were so disenchanted with the way they were being ruled that they saw no other option rather than the most radical transformation of a country that the world had seen up to that point. Yeah. Maybe since Napoleon. I mean, no other revolution had had so much of an impact on the world as Napoleon had. I mean, you saw in 1789 when the French Revolution happened, the world declared war on France. I mean, obviously they can't do that to Russia in 1917 when Russia collapses into communist chaos. But what they can do is send their own contingents there and ensure that it goes down the way they want it to. But that yeah. doesn't work out either. Was there no, let's protect the czar, let's uphold the monarchy and just force reforms in? Yeah. Or was everyone too busy with the war to be able to mm, I, effectively see, I, assist? I was surprised at the speed at which the Russians are abdicated. He abdicated in March 1917. And that was when the first revolution occurred, whereby a provisional government was brought in. And then in October, an another revolution occurred again, which brought Russia out of the war. So the mistake of the provisional government was continuing the war. But I was very surprised that the Tsar didn't try to stay on as a kind of constitutional monarch, as yeah. seen in Britain. Hmm. I just think that the mindset of compromise was not present within the Russian court because Absolutely. it was so completely out of touch with what the people wanted. Not only did it not know how to modernize, it also didn't know how to compromise. I think we should move on now to 1918 and the concluding year of the war. And hmm. um, what strikes you about 1918? The war ends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that is true. But what struck me the most is just how wrong I was about it before. In my mind, in 1918, 1918 was the year that Germany finally wrapped up the war with Russia with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and they then turned their full attention towards the West 
and the West was only saved by America. And in all of those counts, I was wrong, which I soon discovered. In the first case, because it took Germany a very long time to wrap up the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, I quoted a number of delegations in that case, and a lot of them were very interesting, such as I especially loved the one where uh, Maria Spiridonova, I think was her name, um, was talking to one of the German delegations. The account of the story is just so funny because the German the German representative is talking to M- Maria and Maria is describing the way she assassinated a assassinated a, a Russian official. And the way <laughs> the way it's described that the this German official is listening to the story as if he was fascinated with how she murdered this guy. It's just it just it was so funny to me. But that's a <laughs> that's another that's a side note. Yeah, that's a little side note. But certainly in this case, it it did not end the way Germany wanted it to initially, so much so that Leon Trotsky and Lenin said that they were just going to bow out of the negotiations. And after they did that, in mid-February, Germany was forced to, in the duo's mind, declare war on Russia again for like about five days. And in those five days, Germany basically took everything that it couldn't get through diplomacy and the Russian delegation was forced to sign a worse deal than it originally had on the table because by that stage, Germany had so much sway over the negotiations. Now, this peace that Germany had signed with Russia, if it pulled all those troops out of the provinces that it's just taken, Mm. surely uh, nationalist Slavic uprisings would immediately incur once the troops have moved off. Yeah, well, you see, that is what the duo were so afraid of. And because they were so afraid of it, instead of moving all their troops to the west, they actually left over a million men in the east to take care of what the duo hoped would be the German East Empire. The greater German Empire. Yeah. The... What what living spaces? Yeah, living. It was living space before it was living space, <laughs> which is what I like <laughs> to call it. Like before before Hitler had called it Lebensraum, the duo were already thinking of a German East Empire, and they were completely confident in victory. So confident, in fact, that they didn't feel like they needed those million men, and they had full confidence in the idea that the West was going to be smashed by the influence of German troops. If only that Zimmer telegram hadn't gone. Yeah, because that Zimmerman telegram has drastic implications for the war. But I'm going to move to my to my second to my third point now. I'm going to move to my third point now. I already mentioned how I was wrong about the the Russian Treaty of Brest-Litovsk ending, and I already mentioned as well just there how I was wrong about all the troops moving from the east to the west. But I was also wrong about how I thought. America saved the Allies. And I was wrong about this in the military sense. Because in my opinion, America did make a vast contribution to the Allied war effort, but it's not in the way history remembers it. In fact, I don't think that the American military contribution is what saved the Allies, and I don't think that the American military contribution is what ended the Central Powers. I think it was more a psychological contribution. Yeah. In the sense that once the American juggernaut was there, and obviously there to stay... And once the manpower resources of America were obviously going to be felt within a few months, Germany knew not only was it a race against time, but that there was the real sense, even if it did defeat Britain, and even if it did defeat France, how are we going to defeat America in our current state? There was just no possible way. Yeah, Four years of fighting, and yeah. now you've got a fresh pair of legs mm. onto the battlefield with all of its inexperience, 
but so much manpower, so mm. much resources, an entire continent to itself to draw upon for yeah. power. It would have seemed like mm. the impossible task. But even then, what I didn't mention in my episode was on what I didn't mention in my 1918 episode was I didn't go into enough the complete imagined reality that the duo had created that by even by being successful in this offensive that they were going to end the war because of the American entry into the war every single ally was now completely psychologically boosted they they believed in eventual victory even if that victory was going to come at a cost they knew with America behind them they couldn't possibly lose and they weren't going to allow themselves to lose yeah that was seen, I think that's seen most clearly in the French attitude. When one of the German offensives starts to move, it's in it's within 56 miles from Paris, and the French government is not drawing up plans to surrender, it's drawing up plans to move to Bordeaux. So it's drawing up plans to continue the war, while the British are drawing up contingency plans for landing new troops further up the coast. So it's not like the war is going to end just because the just because the Germans are successful in their offensives. And I think that fact is more important than any other that the duo had this idea that because they were successful in these offensives, the war was going to end. But not only were they not going to end, the war was going to continue. Because even if they were successful, which I, which from the beginning they could not have been, in my opinion, yeah. even if they were successful there, they couldn't have beaten America anyway. This, this reality is realized once the 1918 spring offensives drag on and on and on. Therefore, in my opinion, <laughs> finish, finish. yeah. Therefore, in my opinion, the American contribution is psychological and not military. Because even if America had not realized its full potential, it spurred the Allies on, and it made the duo realize that the task was impossible. Now, were there any great American victories? Just, just as a point, not to dismiss the American military contribution completely. Was there? any great American victories to before. Well, now, I'm not going to pretend that I know names of American battles because I skimmed over. It got to a point where after I got past the first few German offensives that were beaten back, I didn't really look at the later parts of the offensives insofar as I didn't look at them in as much detail as the first parts. What I do know is that for the longest time, the Americans were pretty much treated as if they were just extra men from random countries and they were divided in amongst the French and British. It wasn't until about the start of June that they were divided into their own army under General John J. Pershing. And after that stage, they were treated as separate units and sent, tragically, sent to attack the stupidest objectives um, on the flimsiest intelligence, which resulted in completely unnecessary casualties, such as there's the famous one of... I can't remember the name, but there's one of a farce that the Americans were supposed to attack... And it was supposed to contain only, only I think the number was actually like a thousand men. But it, what it actually contained was a thousand men plus a number of battalions plus a number of resting battalions plus a number of other German battalions that were supposed to be moving through different areas and that were resting there. <laughs> so it was just such a disaster. And they were acting a lot of the time on Franco-British intelligence that really steered them wrong. And yeah. I think for that reason as well, we have to be careful I have to be careful, because I'm the main culprit here, to not devalue the American contribution in military terms. As much as I think the psychological contribution is more important, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, um, as much as I think the psychological contribution is more important, the military contribution is considerable also. Um, I mean, the the movies that you see about the yeah. First World War, uh, yeah. you, you see that there's a lot of like uh, German, and then there's a lot of 
French movie, and then there's a lot of British movies. But the mm. American movies, specifically on it, always come across as very patriotic and very mm. heroic. To- you see, I don't want to dismiss the American military contribution because they, they lost a lot of men. They, they lost- did take mm. casualties. They did spend money and resources to really, <laughs> really help out the British. Yeah, I, that is true. The Americans lost 56,000 men killed and 204,000 men wounded. So they certainly were bloodied by the war itself. Even in just the final year. Yeah, even in just the final year when they really started to militarily contribute. So me saying that I think they contributed more psychologically does not mean that they did not contribute anything militarily at all. Yeah. I don't want to offend my American listeners in that sense because they really did contribute and they suffered just like the British and French suffered. The thing just to remember... Just as the rest of the world suffered. Yeah, just as the rest... They suffered just as the rest of the world suffered. The thing to remember is the Americans were fresh and yeah. seeing fresh Americans and seeing fresh soldiers and knowing that they're on your side is like running a marathon... And then when you're on the 24th mile, seeing a fresh person beside you, encouraging you on. That's what it's like, knowing that they're going to run to the finish with you. I think that's the best way to describe it. Even though that person who's running beside you in that marathon isn't going to run for you, he's still going to run with you the entire time. So that's Nice analogy. Yeah, like so it. he's going to really help. Like, So that's going to really help spur you on. I mean, that's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. And the American, of course, Americans did suffer and they did die in vast numbers. They're still going to run. They're still going to, just to continue your analogy, they're still going to have to make the sacrifice to train and to really work hard in these last few. Yeah. It's still the psychological benefits to the who who was already there. Mm. That that was all key and all important. Yeah. So So thank you, America. You, You gave us the kick in the... Kicking the ass to get the war done. Mm. Like, I often... I, I, I pose the rhetorical question of what would have happened had America not been in the war. And in that case, I think the war would have dragged on longer. And the, both sides would have been depressed in the sense that yeah, they couldn't see an end. Yeah, they couldn't see an end. And there was no overwhelming force on either side because both sides would have been equally... I mean, the British and the French and the Italians did have more resources collectively than the German and Austrians did. And by by late 19 or mid-1918, the Ottoman Empire was pretty much spent. So in that sense, it was going to end in favour of the Allies either way, in my opinion. Even if the Americans had not stepped in, the war would have dragged on for longer and it probably would have resulted in more devastation of Germany because as it dragged on, the duo would have thought, if we can drag on the war as long as possible, we'll get better terms for Germany. They didn't do this when America joined the war because they figured there was no point. Either way, the war was going to end, so we might as well just end it now. And it was probably, I think, the best decision the duo made, even though the way they made it was very sneaky, as we saw all the numerous sources I quoted for that in episode 20.9. They, did it, they ended it in a very sneaky way, but the decision to end the war was the right one, in my opinion. Uh, we're going to be playing Axes and Allies, uh, a game by Hasbro underneath Wizards of the Coast, which is a part of Alvin Hill, originally designed by uh, Bradley. Yeah. Bradley. The game was originally designed by Bradley, I think. It is a board um, game. It is a board game, and this year they're releasing the First World War version of it. It's normally Axes and Allies 
and they've done maybe 10 editions of it during World War II, mm-hmm. but they've finally done their first World War One one, and yeah. I'm super psyched for it. I showed it to Zach, and I showed video games that were related to it. And now I'm super psyched as well. Yeah, so we're, we were going to do this, we're going to buy it, and hopefully they'll come out with an Eastern Front as well, so we can... We can do the uh, the Asian battles because it is it's it's a world war. So. Yeah, and the, I think the best way to describe the game is like diplomacy. If anyone's ever played yeah, diplomacy, if you play diplomacy, it's done by the same guys. They're the same company mm. that designed both games, so, except it's on a wider scale. So yeah. super excited, and I'm having little uh, nerd fireworks in my head as we speak. <laughs> so. Yeah, on that note, if you want to join us, uh, if you're Irish local and uh, you want to <laughs> join us in this uh, diplomatic campaign of war and intrigue and uh, we could change how the ending happens I mean send us a mail let us know yeah if you want to join in um just as a, as an interesting side note if you don't know I'm very much into tabletop war games and anything to do with war games uh, I recently did a study into the history of war gaming because I thought well hey it had to start somewhere <laughs> and uh it was actually, jeez, uh, oh, it's been a while since I looked at it, but it was uh, it was actually originally the first true war game, aside from chess, which is an abstract war game, but the first true war game was called Kriegspiel, and uh, it was invented in 1780 by uh, Johann Hellud, no, Helwig, Helwig, Johann Helwig. It was formalized into a, a proper set of rules in 1812, uh, for Kaiser Wilhelm, so that he could play these war games, and it it was actually well, it was it was one of the leading factors why the the Prussian military generals were so in tune with tactics and mm, and battle yeah. strategy in the again, or eighteen seventy war against France. Mm, that's good. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I was really surprised to find this war game that mm. it, it existed so long. I knew that. Obviously, there was military strategy games where that were specifically designed for replicating war. But to have this one all the mm. way back, originally being designed in the 1780s, yeah, that, that, is, is, that is pretty incredible. A right? really long time, it, it, and it's it originated <laughs> for the Prussian officers. A lot mm. of the Prussian officers were into it. They were yeah. like, hey, "Let's do this." It's interesting as well how how like it would be. It would have to be like the Prussians that invent something yeah. like this. <laughs> and it's it's great because wargaming now is just a thriving industry, mm. and it's it's great fun. And it had its origins in true military strategy. Yeah, of course. Okay, guys, and that is the podcast. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast, guys. And we hope this was a satisfactory conclusion to the World War One specials. My name is Zach. And my name is Sean. And you have been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks. Thanks. Hey guys, so Sean and I had a lot of fun making this episode, so here are just some of the outtakes that we felt it would be pretty amusing to just throw in here at the end. So thanks again for listening. Enjoy! You know what I've been doing recently? What? I've been being fit. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Okay, well, Sean, I think that's terrible, so um, the other day, you know, I was on a run. Doesn't sound scripted at all. No doesn't sound scripted at all i think we should do leave the one with the laughter in it it's yeah way funnier. yeah that's true yeah sometimes it's better to just not force things when balls are itchy um 
So check in. Just, just get it out of here. Yeah. <laughs> 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 right, I was trying to keep it in control. Rain. <laughs> I will. Become like the, the Buddha of this new religious sect. Why the Buddha? Why not like... The Jesus of yeah, the religious... Yeah, or the Moses. Oh, because you're kind of chubby and you sit... Squat. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I do. I do whole, tend to humble you're not myself. The whole Jesus thing, where you totally toned abs. And yeah, the, and I'm the, probably not Middle Eastern enough to be Buddha it's though. True. Well, I mean, you got the Jesus beard, so you, I mean, you could pass for a Jesus. Yeah, that's true. It's a good thing I can edit. Still. This isn't sacrilegious, <laughs> is it? <laughs> okay. I'm, uh, I'm the first brand shirt of this new Zach Twombly, and you won't be the last. I hope. In Ireland, wasn't it blue shirts instead of tea? Is for tell a friend. No, it's for like lunchtime. Tea, high tea, having tea. We're Irish. Tea is for tea. You drink it. It's a leafy thing that you get from China. Tea. <laughs> tea is for tell somebody. And he was the one who tried to convince, and successfully, mainly because the Kaiser was so romantically obsessed with the idea of a navy. And now he just sounds like. He's gay. <laughs> no, he doesn't at all. I was about to say it. <laughs> I'm not romantically obsessed with oh, him. Romantically yeah, obsessed with turpets. the Navy. Mm. No, that's just an <laughs> unnecessary thing, and now I have to edit that out. Um, especially after the Second World War. <laughs> Don't die. I'll try not to. <laughs> um, oh, ow. That really hurt my throat. Don't worry, we can take a break. No, it's fine. Uh. <laughs> Do you want a glass of water? No, no, it's fine. Hold on. <clears throat> okay, I think I'm alright now. You don't need to tank it, man. If you're thirsty. No, no, I'm not. Pause it and get some water. No, if I am thirsty, I will. I definitely will. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay, so. Yeah. It'll be good. We, we haven't had a long walk on ages. Yeah, it's true. It's yeah. True. And they won't be that busy. And we could even have lunch, maybe. Yeah, no, yeah, cool. that's a great idea. Um, Except it's like three o'clock and I don't know what that was it sounded like like a that was my point because I didn't mean to leave Japan out but I did and that's a good example of racism no (laughs) no it's a good example of people throughout history forgetting the the contribution Japan made Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 